VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, October the 4th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair. Today, you know the deal. We're looking forward to speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 8626. Well, just a glorious, albeit brisk fall morning here. Blue sky and not a breath of wind, which is not a very common occurrence in this neck of the woods. Hopefully, it's also beautiful where you are tuning into the program this morning. Okay. For the first time in over 20 years, Memorial University is sending a men's rugby team to the pitch. They got a couple of games this weekend, so on Friday at 5 p.m. over at the Swatters Club, Munn's taking on the Dalhousie Tigers, and then after getting a look at each other on Friday, they play in the first ever annual Marco Cup on Sunday at 5, uh, pardon me, at 1 p.m., also at the Swatters Rugby Complex. So Munn's rugby back on the pitch. Good for them. Couple of local soccer teams making their way to the Nationals. Want to give a shout out. Good luck, safe travels to, let's see here, Paradise Boys under 17s. They're headed to the Nationals. Also got the St. John's Girls under 17 teams also headed to the Nationals, which is happening tomorrow or beginning tomorrow in Surrey, British Columbia. Good luck to them. And all right, I see this and I heard Brian Medora speaking to it in the newscast. But for the figure skating fans, of which there are many in this neck of the woods, once again, to use the same phrase, and lots of pretty handy figure skating clubs in the province, so Stars on Ice making their way to the Mary Brown Center on December the 1st. Uh, tickets go on sale actually this Friday, 12 noon. Elvis Stoiko, Kurt Browning, and of course, Caitlin Osmond. I think sometimes we maybe lose sight of just what a terrific career Caitlin had. So I'll run down a couple of things. She's a three-time Canadian national champion. She won in 2013, 14, and 17. She competed, of course, at the senior level from 2012 to 18, won three Olympic medals, gold and silver in the team event, and an individual bronze. She won two world championship medals, gold and silver, and one Grand Prix final medal, a bronze for Caitlin Osmond. They're coming to town in December. Tickets go on sale this Friday if you are so inclined. All right, a couple of, I think, relatively interesting notes. This was the beginning of the space race. And for better or worse, I've been talking about space a fair bit here on the show. But today, the Soviet Union launched the first successful artificial object to exit the Earth's atmosphere. That, of course, was the satellite Sputnik 1. That was in 1957. The Americans immediately nervous, legitimately the beginning of the space race. And we know where that went and how we got there. And also, people bemoan the fact that we don't have a train service here in the province. And it would be a different place if there was the opportunity to hop on the train. But it was today in 1883 that the legendary Orient Express travel line had its first roll down the tracks from Paris to Constantinople, of course, at Istanbul. So the long-distance passenger train service uh, created by the Compagnie Internationale des Wagons, I think that's the proper pronunciation. So comfort, luxury, it was really a quite the experience. You see some of the pictures, maybe some of the scenes that were filmed on the murder on the Orient Express. And it went by the wayside, you know, with the high-speed rail that came along, caught rate airlines, away went the Orient Express, but it made its first trip today in 1883. All right, let's talk about insurance here for a second. So we know that the folks who suffered a storm surge, uh, devastation of their home, they probably don't have any insurance in place to put the house back wherever they're going to rebuild. 
So the insurance companies say that they're working towards trying to figure out how to price out and to cover storm surges. And they're going to have to figure it out because it won't be the last time that it happens. And people, of course, it might feel quite galling and frustrating to know you've been paying home insurance for all these years or decades just to have it not available when you need it the very most. Then there's a question that was posed by a listener yesterday. And I'm reaching out to you because I've gotten two different opinions on it and two different quotes on it. And this is about the fact that it's becoming fairly popular and subsidies available for people to install a mini split or a heat pump in their home. And they are quite efficient. We were quite pleased when we renovated to put one in. So whether it be a little cool air in the summertime or to heat the particular area where the mini split is installed when the temperatures cool off. But here's the trick. It's really important that you check with your insurance company about insurance coverage. I've had two different people tell me two different experiences when they try to explore what it will take and what it will cost and what kind of insurance will be in place. And this is whether or not you're able to have heat pumps or mini, split, mini splits as your primary or only source of heat versus having alternatives, whether it be electric baseboards or your oil, oil, oil fired furnace, whatever the case may be. So now this is me looking to you for some help as to what you know about it and your experience with it. We had no issue with our insurance because we still have both electric baseboard heaters and the oil furnace down in the basement. So if you can help me understand exactly what's going on in that front with the insurance companies, and of course to the benefit of the listeners, because a lot of people, more and more people, will be looking at the mini split as an opportunity to save a few bucks and to have that, that chance to cool off in the summer and just to focus heat up in, the, say, the kitchen area in the wintertime. Okay. I read this story. This comes from Ontario. Once again, it's about insurance and protecting yourself against theft and having to file a claim. So I know on the mainland there's much more of an opportunity for cars to be stolen, to be used in whether it be other crimes, and that can happen here, and or to be shipped off somewhere else for resale and the chop shop approach. So there's a bunch of recommendations as to what you can do to protect your vehicle. And I thought it was interesting because a friend of mine last week had his SUV stolen. One of our co-workers here at VOCM had their vehicle stolen about a month ago. So this just popped in my mind something that might be helpful. So apparently some of them are able to simply just tow your vehicle away. Now that's not very likely in a residential neighborhood, but they suggest when you park, turn your wheels toward the curb. If you have a rear-wheel drive car, back into your spot. If you have a front-wheel drive car, park facing forward. And then it goes on to talk about what is... Pretty common these days is the keyless ignition, right? You just press the button because you have the key fob in your hand or in your pocket. When you bring the key fob into the house, don't hang it on a little hook right by the door because you can indeed still get a signal emitted to your vehicle from that close by. So that's something important to remember. Also, you know I do this all the time. You get out of the vehicle, you didn't lock it with your finger, you wait to press the key fob, and I have a bad habit of that, and I beep beep, right? so that you can give yourself that audio cue that the car is indeed locked. So, don't go too far across the parking lot to do that because apparently you can create a range further than necessary and your fob signal can be uh, intercepted and mimicked. Now, I don't know how common it is for people to sit in Loblaw's parking lot to do exactly that, but that's part of it. This is also a good one. To deter the thieves, they suggest you etch the VIN number into the windshield because that visible deterrent which would be really expensive as opposed to just file it off of the little plate that's on the the dashboard or inside the engine compartment so get it etched in 
to the glass. Never thought of that one. And install GPS so we can find the car once it's gone. So there's a couple of insurance notes. But please do let me know what's going on with the issue regarding mini splits, heat pumps, and insurance. Okay, let's move off to the southwest coast. So the schools are reopening now in Port Basque, and that's good news. Just one more positive step forward. So the repairs are beginning today on the Grand Bay West Bridge, but because of it, the students on the buses are going to be forced to take the long way around down the Trans-Canada Highway until the bridge is fully repaired. So for the folks who were in the schools because they've been displaced from their homes, they're now moving on to St. James Anglican Church. People are reaching out to me constantly, and these generous people, you know, whether it be about the list of items still required in Port of Basque and surrounding areas, we're trying to find out some new drop-off points. Like, we were happy to broadcast on Duffy Place and Kenmount Road and at Akita Equipment and all those types of areas, and people stepped up to the plate, and, of course, at Kellens at the Crossroads. But there's still people reaching out to me, whether it be a lady who I just heard her message this morning. She's got children's Tylenol, a few packages she'd like to send out because that was on the wish list. So if you know about someone heading west and or an organized truck or trailer that's bringing goods out, you let us know and we'll let people know who are still interested in making a donation of that like. There is indeed a Fiona hurricane update coming at 1 p.m. From Confederation Building today, a variety of ministers and the Premier will be involved. We're carrying it live. It happens at 1 p.m., so still a lot of work to do on that front. And we did mention the fact that there's uh, the schools are reopening in Port of Basque, and that's important, but this is also a good one. If you have someone in your social circles or in your sphere and they're in grade 4, there's an opportunity for a virtual, uh, a virtual presentation with the great Dr. T.A. Loeffler from Memorial University. Of course, well-known explorer and mountaineer. She's going to do a presentation titled, We Are All Explorers, coming up on Friday. You have to send her a direct message. This is for all grade 4 social studies students. So just in case the, your child's uh, teacher doesn't know about it, it might be an excellent opportunity to hear from one of the very best. She's got some great stories to tell, so that might be of interest to you. Figured I'd throw that in there. Sticking with this one here for a second. You know, I'm almost loath to bring it up, but there seems to have been a bit of a rash of stories and allegations where men have approached children and grabbed a couple of them or invited them in the car for the purpose of sexual touching and whatnot. It's kind of an off-putting story. But like this one yesterday, a 24-year-old gander man was arrested because he pulled over and approached a child who was walking home from school, driving a red Dodge Journey, and so rolls down the window and invites the child to hop in just for the child to find out that he's half naked. He's naked from the waist down. He's facing all kinds of charges, uh, invitation of sexual touching and indecent act, which is public nudity, exposing the genitals. I mean, come on. But the important part of this story is the RCMP and I would imagine the RNC feel the same way. Because we've had at least five or six of these stories in the last few weeks, however you formulate this conversation with your children, not to scare the heck out of them, but, you know, some of those self-protection things and their little alarm bells that go off in their belly when they think something's wrong and they might be in danger. So as much as that might be a difficult conversation to have, the RCMP are recommending, and it just makes sense to me because holy moly. Okay. Uh, I don't even know what that scribble means. All right, spoke with Florian Viome at uh, TechNL yesterday talking about the opportunities inside the tech and innovation sector. You know, people talk about the fact that everyone's leaving here in droves. 
The numbers don't reflect that, though, interestingly enough. And these are numbers simply from the uh, second quarter of this year. There was a net increase of 3,368 people that have moved to Newfoundland and Labrador from interprovincial migration. So they're moving here from other parts of the country. When you look a little further at it, seems like a lot of people are leaving Ontario. So some 3,700-plus people moved to the province in the second quarter. That's up 35.8% from a year earlier, and generally due to the uh, move from Ontario to this province. Also, of course, people have left. 2,400 people have left the province to move elsewhere in Canada in the second quarter of this year. But the end result is a net gain, population growth in simply one quarter of 1,300 people. That's an increase of over 104% from the previous year. So as much as it feels like, man, oh man, there's got to be greener pastures, there's got to be a better way, a better place, people are still viewing this province as a place to be. And there are some reasons why we can be encouraged. I hear the stories, you know full well I hear the stories, about the worries that people have. But even in the Tech NL envelope, they're forecasting their growth to be explosive. They figure in five years they will add an additional 5,000 jobs to the already well-populated industry that is tech and innovation in the province. So, yes, we can talk about what's bothering people or frustrating people and the crisis in healthcare and all the rest of it, but, you know, every now and then we sprinkle in some of the things that are actually happening that are positive just for the sake of maybe just to spare myself mentally and possibly you as well. So in that world, so we mentioned the fact that World Energy, GH, no, pardon me, the province had signed a declaration of uh, intent or a memorandum of understanding with Germany about the provision and the export of green hydrogen. World Energy, GH2, has also signed a memorandum of understanding with the Halapu Nation and the town of Stephenville itself. A lot of this will focus in on job training opportunities and what have you. We're still in the throes of the environmental assessment. And there's people opposed to the project. I understand that. And many people are simply full-on full-throated supporters of the project. But even in just in that region, if this World Energy GH2, and there's lots of complications to it, and people rightfully talk about the appetite for a fairly expensive product being green hydrogen when compared to other things like liquefied natural gas or blue hydrogen or gray hydrogen, but that's the plan that Risley and his group have brought forward. So if that happens, and what that might mean for economic uptick and jobs created, and there's still big questions about what's in it for us as a province at large. But if that, and if the Diamond Group of companies have their proposal to take over Stephenville Airport, which they have, they've already bought it, they've renamed it already, but all the big plans for the massive investments and the cargo drones to be manufactured on site and all the rest of it, if that all comes to play, there will be certainly a lot of big things happening in and around the town of Stephenville. How are we doing on the phone there, Dave? All right. We see that as of last Thursday, the work restrictions have been lifted at the Come-By Chance Refinery, of course, Brea Renewable Fuels. We also understand, now we're trying to reach out to Glenn Nolan with the union, that four of the eight that were injured and transported to hospital, four of them remain in the hospital, different injuries and burns. I know we're not going to get specifics, and nor do we need to probe, uh, probe into people's personal medical circumstances, but we understand four of them remain in the hospital. We wish them speedy recovery. I mean, and that's since September the 2nd, right? So over a month at this point. Brea has completed an internal investigation. They haven't made the details public as to what caused the flash fire and consequently the explosion. The external investigation continues with different groups, including occupational health and safety. But the workers are going back on site. Dave, I can hear whatever in my ears, the clicks that you just had there. All right. We've got some what? radio coming in here. Yeah. I don't know what's going on, but I can hear Jerry Lynn Mackey now, too. 
Anyway, so they're returning to work, and we'll see if Mr. Nolan can provide any details. And remember, prior to the fire, there were some 600 people working on the site, but they are going back to work, had come by chance. And like the last time we spoke to Mr. Nolan, he pointed out that maybe not everybody is going to go back, but the work restrictions have been lifted, and you want to take that on, we can absolutely do that here today. We reported yesterday, and it's uh, ongoing work between NAPE and the provincial government, but 18 of the bargaining groups have indeed voted to ratify the contract offer from the province. That's 13 directly represented by NAEP. Other five include uh, Memorial University. They're on side. Three groups vote against. That's the Air Service Workers, Marine Services Group, and the Correctional Officers. Here's some of the details of the deal that was presented. 2% wage increase every year for the next four years. Increases to meal allowances, health insurance for temporary employees, a one-time employee recognition bonus of $2,000. You're able to substitute statutory holidays for people who may observe a non-Christian faith-based holiday. Different things regarding sick notes, and there's additional maternity, adoption of paternal leave without pay will be increased from 72 to 78 weeks from 52. Also talking about different language regarding gender-neutral language, sick notes and the like, and there's introduction of paid family violence leave. But those deals, 18, have been voted in favor of and back the drawing board for the three outstanding units as mentioned. And, of course, the big ones, K-12 system, health care, criminal justice, whatever you want to talk about, I'm into it. Also, this is a good one. I want to say happy 49th anniversary to my friends at Joe's Barbershop. Okay, Joe Slaney is right there on Mary Meeting Road. So Kathy Slaney and her work wife, as she calls her, Debbie Lucas McKay, would like to thank their, their customers for their continued patronage. 49 years they've been styling your hairdo up at Joe's Barbershop. Happy anniversary to Kathy and Debbie. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openline at vocm.com. Uh, when we come back, we're speaking with you on a topic of your choosing. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on line number, what do you think, Dave, two? Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Louie. You're on the air. Hello. How are you doing today? Very well, Louie. How are you doing? Well, I wish you could say great, but uh, same here. again, as you said, you like a follow-up. I would. I'll just uh, give people, I'll set people up with what's going on here. Louie was, I'll say, brave enough to call the show last week to talk about the fact that he presented himself at police headquarters, tried to file a complaint regarding his being the victim of a sexual assault, was told he'd get a call back to, you know, open the file to begin the investigation, and nothing happened as of last week. What's the update, Louis? Anything? Well, I did uh, get a call back some time after, and I was uh, told to make an online report. So I went online, and these are not the type of things you report online at all. There's not even the option there. So I phoned back in, and another officer confirmed that you don't report that online. So I'm getting to run around a lot. That's actually the second time I was told to report something online that you do not. And then when I was, you know, I was a bit upset and saying, you know, I've phoned in a few times. And, of course, uh, the woman's take some information and uh, I said, you know, it's hard enough to deal with with even, you know, off-topic threats I've dealt with in the building, which the response was not something you expect from an officer's law, which was we all have our issues that we're dealing with. Now, I'm mentioning to an officer the law that you're being threatened. I don't think that would be an appropriate response. But knowing back on topic, knowing that they wanted to generate a file now is knowing that nothing was ever done in the first place, not from the get-go, talking from the sergeant that said that was set something up right up to this point. And it was just an ordeal to even bother to try again. 
to be shot down like that. I, I've with this person, woman that I've been having the issues with over the years. It extends beyond to the point of parental alienation, which I know is going on, yet I couldn't get anybody in child services to take it serious enough. Um, I've talked to a specialist in the States briefly. I talked to other people in the within the law, legal aid, uh, even one officer in law, which said this definitely sounds like parental alienation. So sexual abuse, um, alienating the parent, plus which is affecting the child. There's not one thing here I can do, and I'm willing to consider that other males have the same problem. And this is absolutely not okay, not fair, to the point I feel, and this is my opinion here, that phoning in about this if you're a male is a waste of time. That's all I've gotten out of it, nothing but strife. And it's just, it was such a baffling to deal with to talk about this, to be discredited when they're encouraging people to come forward, that I couldn't even defend myself against this woman and I can't even defend my own child. And there's no courts holding that against me. And I guess when they say, you know, the health care is broken, the whole system is broken. And I don't see any repairing any of this at all, and I, I don't see any answer to it whatsoever. It's not only terrible for you, it's that trickle-down effect where it might mean that someone else listening who has been a victim, man or woman, will just not report. And that just makes the community less safe because someone who's a sexual predator might be out there walking amongst us. I spoke to a story yesterday, and this one isn't about the RNC, it's about the RCMP. Their civilian oversight body reports that they've been bungling sexual assault uh, allegations and investigations, and several officers in several instances not taking these reports seriously. So we've got ourselves a problem here. If the stats are, and it's hard to prove these stats out in full, but for instance, this was the number that we use regarding women. If one in ten who have been assaulted come forward and the other nine remain quiet, that's a societal problem. We have got to do something about this. Well, you can see what, what I'm presenting here, why people would remain silent. Why would they bother to be embarrassed, not being taken serious, and cause more psychological stress on themselves, more trauma? So it, it, it's a hard thing to say, but it seems like we're left to deal with it on our own. And that's just how it goes. It, it is hard to notice that. It's hard to say it. I don't like saying it, but people like me and others like me that dealt with a woman that done this, we are on our own. That has been made clear. There's there's, there's not enough there to support us. The, the stereotype still sticks that women are the victims always. But that's sad. Everyone, there are people who know the difference of that stereotype, but it seems like within this area of the law, that is a stereotype. And, and, and it makes things impossible, is what it makes, impossible. And uh, it, it's, I don't even know how you begin to change that. Uh, mentality is hard to change, especially in mass. Whether you be man, woman, boy or girl, these reports have to be taken absolutely serious. Uh, the law enforcement agencies need to do their level best at every single occurrence where whoever presents and says, I've been sexually assaulted, I'm the victim of a sexual assault or sexual abuse, and they do what they're needing to do. But we're going to have to because, you know, it's a big broad stroke question. And I think the best idea is that we can see if we can't get some time with uh, Chief Roach here on the show to talk about exactly what the department, how they're trained, what they think, what they do, what should be the protocol or the process, whatever the case may be, when someone like yourself 
presents at headquarters because this is, it's a terrible story, and I feel terrible for you, Louie. And I bet you there's a bunch of people listening to the show this morning that may have come forward and not got the type of investigation they wanted or they thought they deserved, or people who have just not presented because they don't want to go through it. They don't want to go through the ordeal of not being taken seriously or how we see it unfold in the courts and all the rest of it. So I'm glad you called back again today with an update, even though it's not the one that you wanted or I wanted. But we'll see if we can get the chief on the show. All right, you take care, my good man. I wish you nothing but the best. You too. Take care. Thanks, Louis. Bye-bye. Mm. You know, how can that be? Why is that? Uh, let's go to line number four. Caller, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I was speaking with your producer there and explained a little bit there, so I guess I'll start from scratch. Okay. Um, yesterday afternoon, I, ta- I usually swim at the uh, summit in Mount Pearl. I take my brother that has cerebral palsy and he's into a walker. I guess, I don't know if you're familiar with the summit, but just, I guess, for everybody out there, the summit has two pools. It has a leisure pool and an Olympic-sized pool. Both pools have, I guess, um, a walkway that goes into the pool, like a ramp, that from the deck into the pool has two rungs on either side to hold on to for people with disabilities. We use the um, leisure pool. So anyway, as, as we all know, they're just back off a strike and the, the um, schedule is a little bit, you know, mixed up. Anyway, the, usually this swim is an adult, but last week and this week it's uh, tots included as well, but that's being rectified next week, which is fine. Yesterday while we were there at the pool, there was a couple of parents, there were a couple of ladies with their small children, probably one, two years old which is fine. They weren't really causing much fuss, and, you know, you tolerate it until next week and it's gone back. Anyway, one of these particular ladies with her son was at the bottom of the ramp, so it was kind of blocking, like, your entry and your exit into and out of the pool. So anyway, that, that's fine. They were there for, like, a, like, they just weren't just there and out of it. They were there for, like, kind of an extended period of time. My brother was coming out of the bathroom with his walker, going to come into the pool. They were there. I knew they would have been in the way that when he would come down into the ramp that he wouldn't have been able to access into the pool completely because they were blocking the bottom of the ramp. So I went over to the lifeguard that was on duty on the uh, uh, on deck and I said, listen, you know, these people there, the lady and the, uh, the child, are blocking the ramp. My brother's not able to get into the pool. Can you ask them to move? She said, well, uh, it's part of the pool. I said, yes, I understand it's part of the pool, but they're blocking the ramp. He's not got access into it. They need to move. Can you ask them? She said, well, you know, it's part of the pool. So I said, are you going to do it? Because if you're not, I will. She didn't do it. So I went over to the lady and excuse me. I said, you're blocking the ramp. I said, you've got to move. I said, because there's a person coming down the ramp. They need to enter the pool. The lady turned to me and said, well, my son is afraid of the water. I said, well, you know, I can't help that, but you've got to move because I said, there's somebody entering the pool on the ramp. They need to access the pool. For some reason, some way, what I said must have offended her. I don't know why. Because she went off crying, crying to the guard. The guard came over and spoke to me, and I said, well, I asked her to move. She wouldn't move. I asked her again. I was asked to leave the pool. 
I said, yeah. like, you know, like, you're bla- I realise, yes, I mean, it's a no-brainer, yeah, the, the, the ramp is a part of the pool, but she's blocking access to and from I'm and sure. refused to move. Yeah, this is where this is a staff issue, right? You can't have people navigating the somewhat having to take on these conversations on their own. That's exactly why the staff are there to make sure that yeah. people get an equitable chance to get in and out of the pool safely, and that everyone has a bit of fun and uh, safe at the same time. So, I just don't know why people would avoid this. And plus, for so just try to help me picture because I haven't been in that pool personally. Okay. So, I'm the lady with the four-year-old. Yeah. Is it just a matter of you know taking my child in my arms and uh, sidestepping? A couple of strides, left or right, and then all of a sudden yep. I'm out of the way and everything's okay? Yep, exactly. Simple you as that. It. Okay, yeah. so. Now, oh I was at, so when I came home, I called the um, manager of community services program. I got his name there. I won't mention it. And I went to lowdown and what happened. But he said, all I got from him, well, it's a part of the pool. I said, yes, it's a part of the pool. But, you know, they were blocking. It's, a, it's an issue, a safety issue. And I, and I spoke to the, uh, the head guard there. I said, listen, if my brother had to come down and fall, and tripped up and fall and hurt himself because they were in the way. I said, who was responsible? Mm-hmm. Got no answer. And somebody mentioned to me later, said, what happened if your brother had to come down and trip up and fall and fall on the child and hurt the child? Then what kind of action would have been taken against me? I don't know. But their, their, yes. their answer is really quite flimsy. Let's just take it a step further. Okay, yeah. the blue uh, handicapped parking spots in the parking lot here, sure, they're part of the parking lot too. Does that mean I can park in them simply because they're part of the parking lot? What? That's exactly what I came back with. And okay. not only that, I said to him, you know, so are the fire lanes. Fire lanes are part of the parking lot. So that means I can go out and park my car in the fire lane for two or three hours and go into Walmart and go shopping and go to McDonald's, have a bite to eat and come out whenever I'm ready and, and get my car and go on. And that's exactly what I said to her. It's like, it's the same thing. But, you know, like, I got no answer. I called this morning as well the lady that's a recreation supervisor. And I got back from her. She said it's, uh, she came back with, like, a respectful facility, like, like as if I didn't have respect for the guard. But I said, look, I gave the guard the option first, option A. I went to the guard to ask her to ask this lady to move. She wasn't willing, so I said to the guard, well, if you're not going to do it, I will. Yeah. But I said, I went to the guard initially first. I get it. I understand. Yeah. So, so Penny, where do I go? Like, I mean, I'm, I've dealt with, like, these two people at the summit. I've gone, like, above, you know, like, just the staff and, and deck the lifeguards. I've gone to these two people. I've tried. I've gone, actually, to the Coalition for People with Disabilities. Uh, that's what I was going to suggest. Get an advocate. Get a champion on your side. So what did they say? They said, I explained, and they said, like, they agree with me, and they were going to send off an email to the, uh, the, the, the manager. But, like, I was... You know, like what I what I explained to you, I explained to her, and she said, like, oh, yeah, like that's what it was there for. She said they, uh, in conjunction with the city, helped design the summit center, and you know, it, it, that was that, uh, and this this is what they're there for. And she totally agreed with me that the staff should be monitoring this, and that these rents should not be blocked by you know, like toys, people, whomever. You know, to do that, but I, I've gotten the feeling. Well, it's been put on me that I I am the problem again by the uh, the supervisor because she was saying this morning about a respectful workplace, and it's like I wasn't respectful of the uh, lifeguard. But I said, look, a I went to the lifeguard, explained yes, like I, you I know, I know. Now, 
So, I mean, you know why it's easier to ticket a vehicle in the fire lane or the blue handicap spot? is because all you're doing yeah. is putting a ticket on an inanimate piece of glass as opposed to dealing with the general public, which is difficult. And a lot of people don't like doing it because who knows when someone's going to bite your head off. So if I'm yeah. the staffer, I don't like. I can't even imagine being the lifeguard and thinking, "Okay, no, you take care of that. You have an interaction here which might go poorly." As opposed to me with the uniform on, having some authority to simply say, "All we need you to do is hold your lovely little four-year-old tightly, sidestep a couple of strides. It'll take thirty seconds, and you can go back to wherever you are. And when the uh, the fellow needs to leave the pool, we ask you to do the same again. Thank you for your cooperation. Goodbye." <laughs> Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So let me know how this goes with the coalition, or if you get any additional feedback from the city of Mount Pearl, the Summit Centre itself, or 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 COD. I'm not getting anywhere with the city and like the, the two, you know, the couple of people that I have been dealing with, it's been put back on me that I'm the problem, that I shouldn't have spoken up, that, the, that, that this ramp is a part of the pool and these people got a right to be at the bottom of the ramp and end of story. Well, you don't have and the right I, to be at the bottom of the end of the slide either, just because it's part of the pool, because someone's going to kick your head in when you come down the slide. So none of this makes any sense to me. I'll tell you what I will do. I'll connect with the summit and see if they can explain this a little clearer to me as to how they can justify not accommodating someone, in this case a person with a disability. Uh, so leave it with me, but good luck and keep me in the loop if you get any further feedback. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Take good care of yourself. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. I get you mean some young staffer or some young referee in a minor sport game in the winter or the summer and you have to speak with someone and you've got that worry or that pang of angst that this is not going to go well is a lot of people just resist it and would avoid it at all costs. You know, the training for being in these positions is not only about, you know, recognizing a foul throw in soccer or a tripping penalty in hockey or irresponsible behavior in the pool or blocking an access point for someone with disabilities. You know, that's got to be a big part of the training, how to talk to somebody. Because if you're simply there to blow the whistle when it's time to get out of the pool or to blow the whistle when the ball goes over the goal line, that's only a part of the equation, isn't it? Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Weekdays on VOCM. It's Open Line with your host, Patty Daly. Join the conversation each morning from 9 a.m. to noon on your VOCM. We get people talking. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line one. Tom, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning. Um, you know, I've been reflecting a lot as, as NAEP has just signed their set of agreements, and I'm assuming in the backdrop, although I haven't heard anything about it, I guess QP is also doing it because their collective agreements all expired at the same time. Um, and, you know, as, as a society and as a community, you know, when members of the society uh, can disconnect from it, you wonder where we're all going, and, you know, and looking at why communities were formed and, and they're created because people gather together for safety and, and that then allows people to specialize and allows for better quality of life, longer lifespans. And, and generally, when you looked at small communities, you know, when they first started forming thousands and thousands of years ago, um, you know, everybody had the role, but there was no real money. Nobody got paid, and, and everybody just did their thing. The farmers grew their thing, and and everybody, you know, certain people defended the place, and certain people looked after people. And, and I, I just wonder where we're all heading now. And it just seems like like individuals no longer feel responsible for the community and and the future of the community, probably even more importantly. And I feel like when that happens, then that's a sign that your community is crumbling. Uh, 
And I don't know how we get back to that point. And even more troubling is when the people who we rely upon to keep us alive, who provide health and safety and other roles that are important like that or protection or keeping clean water or whatever else, when they no longer feel responsible for the community, when the conversation becomes only about um, it's not only about money, but it's about quality of life or about money or however you want to define it. When it no, when when the reality of the community no longer seems to be part of the discussion, I wonder where it leaves us. You know, yeah, in but uh, but Tom, yeah. they they'll still be able to provide the fresh water and pick up your garbage and pave a pothole and all of these things, all the while negotiating for their rate of pay. So they don't have to be mutually exclusive. They do not. However nowhere in the rate of pay. So if in that community that existed a long time ago, there was only so much um, wheat to go around because the farmer could only grow so much wheat and members of society want to have more wheat than exists, then you have a an existential challenge. I mean, the provincial government spending grew from $5 billion to $9 billion this year, which is an 80 since 2005, which is an 83% increase. Inflation during that time was 39%. And and it's growing 4% this year, going up to probably $9.4 billion. And we're spending 30% more of our revenue, so of the wheat we're growing, than we actually have coming in. And 41% of that money gets spent on employee expenditure. Yeah, I mean, I know your position on this stuff, but there's also a portion of the conversation that I don't, I don't think we include uh, when you and I speak, is that there may indeed be a revenue problem, but I don't think so. We don't have a revenue problem, we have a distribution problem. So whether or not people get paid too much in one person's opinion or another, there is uh, there is an absolute issue inside, especially provincial and federal governments, where revenue was there, the way we spend it has not been carefully managed over the years. If there's infrastructure uh, catch-up to be done, of course, that's unavoidable. If there's largesse inside of government departments and unnecessary spending at the end of the year to make sure your budget isn't decreased, those types of things, that's where the focus will get us much more back in line with understanding how revenue looks, how revenue spent. Totally, that is true. Um but when you have to bribe employees to go to work, which is where we are now, and they don't take the bribes because we're paying them enough money that they don't need it. So when you look at the fact that 237,000 Newfoundlanders earn less than $38,000 a year, that's 56%. And the average public servant earns 78000 Now, of course, that does, there's lots of public servants way, way less than that, obviously. But you add into the fact that they have very generous pensions and benefits, which since pension reform six years ago, the pensions and the benefits are continuing to become more and more unfunded by almost a billion dollars. And they have, you know, certain members of NAEP start work and, you know, everybody starts with three weeks holidays in addition to all these holidays that we add on. And it seems like and, and this is not – it's not personal, and every individual listening to this who might be a member of one bargaining unit or not, because one thing everybody needs to realize is that when NAEP negotiates a raise, every manager in their – who oversees the bargaining unit also gets the exact same raises. 
which which seems to be another big problem. I mean, look how manager salaries are going because they they make more money. I mean, if a NAEP member makes an extra fifteen hundred dollars a year or a thousand dollars a year, well, the manager who makes three times as much as them, they make three times as much more extra money. They're just I don't know how we get back to the point where everybody's in the same boat, you know, talking about it. Because when you look at on that backdrop, I mean, we're giving the now all of a sudden magically when when public sector unions sign collective agreements, whether it's with the city of St. John's or the city of Mount Pearl or the province of Newfoundland, there are these, I don't know if it's bribery or, or it's like, here's, here's money from the taxpayer for, for putting, for agreeing to make more money. Um, you know, in the Cape of Nape, there's 17,000 Nape members who just ratified, or I guess some of them didn't, but they'll get around to it eventually. They'll still get their $2,000 per person. That's 34 million dollars. People complain about chairs down a colonial building, so we should. People complain about uh, you know, setting up a premier's office in Grand Falls, so they should. But you add those two things together, they're not a million dollars. So we just sat around a bargaining room table in a in a bankrupt province and wrote a check that is that is borrowed. So we went down to payday loan place and we said, here's here, can you please give us thirty four million dollars on the backs of our grandchildren and on us and our children? And and to give to a group of people who, although they all work hard and they're all wonderful people and friends and family of mine are in that category, lost in the conversation. I mean, in the annual report for NAEP, and I don't mean to keep picking on NAEP, but NAEP is the most powerful union in the province. They have 28,000 members. They're way more powerful than the premier or Siobhan Cody or the mayor of any city. But in their in their thing, they you know they talk about how they're not, you know, Gerardo is very clear. We're not going to let the province balance the books on the backs of our members. And and I understand why he wouldn't want to do that. You know, and then the secretary treasurer says, well, we have, I don't know, 34 or $54 million. I don't know exactly how much it is for our, our defense fund. Well, that, that's not a community. That's that's a community divided. And, and and my message isn't that people shouldn't make more money, but, but the wheat has to be passed around. And when we talk about equity and distribution, you're absolutely right. I can understand why nurses and correctional workers and people who have to work seven days a week because, because we need them to to keep the place going. I understand why they're resentful when, when their peers get magical holidays and have all these benefits. You know, when you look at the raises as they're passed out, and they're going to go right through the public service. I mean, when the existing government was elected, they committed to magically balance the budget. And there was, you know, there's, they, had, they did the PERT report, and, 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 you know, I understand why this is all difficult. And for me, it isn't about picking on any individuals. It's, it's, I just want all of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians to realize that we're going down a very dark path, and you can see how it's playing out. It's great that, that Minister Osborne talks about how the fact that emergency rooms are being closed less and less in September, and that's, that's wonderful, and that's a benchmark. However, the reality is the reason it's happening is because people have had their vacations, and all the people who got sick and who require, you know, we've got a new rule in Canada and in Newfoundland that that it doesn't matter that emergency rooms are closed anymore, and this is going to be a permanent situation that will only get worse. But can you imagine how much worse it would be if people didn't have opportunities to take a vacation and get away from work every now and then, especially in a in a uh, an atmosphere, a workplace like healthcare? 
I mean, my goodness, whatever the problem is today, you can times that by 10 if nobody was able to get away and have some little mental break and physical break from the action. And I wonder how we jive this conversation with things like record job vacancies in the private sector and wage offerings not keeping up with CPI. Because at some point, just like repaying provincial government or municipal government debt, at some point, we just create another vortex where, let's say, uh, minimum wage bumps cause small business to have to do what? Charge more for their goods or service. So we all pay, regardless of it's public or private opportunities here, because this is just how this broken system of this late capitalism that people, you know, market pressures and market pre- uh, price point pressures and all the rest of it and job creation in the private sector. I mean, we've just got ourselves in a situation where regardless of who's doing the hiring, we all end up paying more every single time, regardless if it's my locally owned and operated mom and pop shop or the federal government. We all end up paying when people get more. It's just how it works. It's not supposed to work that way, but that's how it works. The thing is that for whatever reason, everybody's chasing their tail and following some magic leader off the cliff. And it's like how big our homes are, how big our vehicles are, how much travel we do, how much online shopping we do. It's just more, more, more. But it is not our job to borrow money so that someone can go to Florida. And everybody deserves a vacation. You're 100% correct. You know, I get mine in January because my business is busy, you know, most of the year. And I force myself. I take my vacation when I can take it. Um, and I, I, mean, I don't know what you do, but, I mean, is, is, is that what we're saying? We've got to have enough nurses and doctors and allied health professionals and correctional workers and, and, and everything else that for two months of the year. I mean, they have this problem with firefighters and with the city. They, they'll use the cadets during the summer. They'll use the cadets at Christmas time, but they won't use the cadets to reduce overtime for the rest of the year because it's convenient for them during but, the summer. I mean, these are isolated issues. None of these are equal, right? They're simply not. You know, can you backfill a position? You know, I don't want to itemize or identify one particular job at NAEP or any union, but it's more difficult to backfill a doctor than it is to backfill a janitor. And I'm not to bemoan the custodial uh, group out there, but that's just how things work, isn't it? There's a certain level of training and experience and accreditation and licensing required in different walks of life. That makes them more difficult to backfill versus people who are doing jobs which are much easier and quickly trained up so they can do a job adequately or even better than the person that they're backfilling. But I just think that's all different conversations. Healthcare is a vastly different conversation than uh, maintenance staff. Uh, the issue regarding teachers is a different conversation than healthcare. So I, I just think when we lump them all in, we're painting a broad stroke picture that doesn't really capture the intricacies, the complexities of some of these negotiations and, and pay raises and the like. Look, I don't. You say that people don't see the road we're on or the path we're on regarding debt and deficit provincially in particular. I think they do. I mean. <laughs> I'm pretty sure they do, but that's where we've got a distribution issue. Well, there's lots of money coming in the door to provide the necessities for 525,000 people. The issue is just how we do it, and I think that's long been the case, especially in governments like the province and the feds. Tom, I'm late for the break, but i got to run. I appreciate the time this morning. Take care, everyone. Stay too. Bye-bye. All right, let's take that break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Just so we don't give our callers in the queue the short shrift here before we get to the newscast, I told a lady that I'd put this out there because when we see and hear about the scams that are being perpetrated on individuals, also businesses are at risk. And this one here, you've probably heard it and seen it, but I'm going to put it out there. They operate a a small B&B operation. They received a booking uh, for pretty late in the season and were quite delighted to get it. So the cost of that particular say would have been around $2,000. 
So then they got a message on the same on the other side of that from the same person via email saying, "Go ahead and charge my credit card ten thousand dollars, keep the money for my accommodations, and send the rest to me." So you know it's a scam, right? That can go bad in so many different ways. So it just feels good, right? Okay, I'll take my money and send you the cash. There's no no harm to me because it's your ten thousand dollars. I'll take my two. I'll send you eight. But you know full well someone on the other end there has had their identity stolen and or a credit card mimicked. So just things like that are worth keeping an eye out for so that you don't fall prey and end up getting involved in what could be a long road of cost recovery and your role in it. So things like that, be wary of it. If it sounds too good to be true, it always is. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we appreciate the patience of Walter Keating. He's the mayor out in Long Harbor, Mount Arlington Heights. And James wants to talk about the mini-split question I put forward. And Paul is talking about uh, eye care, public coverage. Don't go away. Join us for On Target, one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you. On Target, weekday afternoons at 1 on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number three. Say good morning to the mayor of Long Harbor, Mount Arlington Heights. That's Walter Keating. Mayor Keating, you're on the air. Patty, good morning, and thanks for taking my call. Happy to do it, sir. Welcome to the show. Uh, today, Patty, uh, I'd just like to send uh, the residents of Long Harbor, Mount Arlington Heights would like to donate $5,000 to all the people on the southwest coast that suffered all their damages. That's very kind of you. How are you donating it? Directly to the Red Cross or to the account that they set up at the bank? What are you doing? It's going directly to the Red Cross. Okay. So that's very generous of your community. How did you manage to raise the 5000 Well, basically what it is that the town council got together in an emergency e- uh, send-out email, and we voted to have a $5,000 sent to the community. Yeah, good on you. I mean, there's... People far and wide, even outside of the province, that saw what happened with uh, Fiona in Port of Basque and many other communities. I know we've had yeah. a lot of focus on Port of Basque, but whether it's in Rose, Blanche, or Harbor Lacou or in Burgio, there's been widespread damage, and people have been, like they always are, very kind and very generous now, including your council and the residents along Harbor Mount Arlington Heights. Good on you. And also, Patty, I missed the, the day of uh, the National Day of Truth of Reconciliation. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, we, the town, to stand in solidarity with these people. We know what went on in the past. We know that the suffering they've caused. But together as a community, we will stand with them and help them in whichever way we can. And that's, I think, the widespread consensus here in the provinces. You know, many communities and certainly thousands and thousands of individuals and businesses have made their donations, whether it be monetary or goods or services, and that's the way it should be. And what the, did you uh, you missed the part about the day of Trudem? Oh, I'm sorry, I had a buzz in my headset, sir. I maybe <laughs> did. Go right ahead. <laughs> no, no, I said the the town again, like they stand in solidarity with National Day of Trudem reconciliation. Oh, sorry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like we support them and we're all standing together to make sure that it's all good and we turn for to help them in any way we can. And uh, it's, it's a great thing that we're standing together and helping each other go forward. The, you know, we all have to do a better job of listening and understanding what's going on in these stories, many of which or most of which are horrific so, you know, what I thought was really unfortunate last Friday, like we were given the holiday, uh, which, okay, 
But you know, so many people out there, when it's a day to listen to understand, they hijacked it with things like hearkening back to the Prime Minister surfing at Tofino BC last year. So Tofino was trending. So we made it about someone's political ideology as opposed to what it's really supposed to be about. You know, to be able to take one day a year to have a better understanding and to actually listen to the stories is, I just find it to be remarkable that people are just so oblivious to some fundamental issues. But I appreciate your message here this morning, uh, Mayor Keating. Now, I, have, I have one more statement I'd like to make if I can. You can. I have a great story that I dealt with a lot of First Nation people, in, uh, especially one community of Wapakika First Nation up in the North, up in the North Territories, like I was on their bank. And they lost the school. And this little girl, she was only six years old when I was selected to put up a school that was 10,000 square feet. And she came to me and I got down on my knees and I said, what would you like? She says, I would like a nice new school. And I thought that was so heart-wrenching that she got her school. It was on December the 23rd and she was a happy little girl. Great story. Thanks for sharing that, Mary Kating, And I appreciate your time this morning, sir. Okay, and um, thank you again. My pleasure. Take good care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Uh, let's keep rolling. Let's go to line number two. James, you're on the air. Hey, good morning, Patty. It's been a while. Been a while. Welcome back. And you know the deal. Turn down the radio before you shag us both up. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Okay. You hear me out there okay now? Yeah, not too bad. It's a bit hollow, but go ahead. Okay, one sec, though. I'll just double check here. Take you off there. Okay. Good there now? Fire away. Okay, sounds good. Yeah, uh, so, uh, yeah, just want to touch base on the uh, insurance issue there with the uh, mini splits in, in, in the homes there that you mentioned off the top there. Um, so, yeah, my, 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 my folks actually brought it up to me there last week because they had a couple of their, uh, their relatives that uh, were looking into going with mini splits. And uh, actually, one of them actually had. Uh, taken out the old old furnace and their oil tank that they had there and were on the assumption that there was going to be rebates and stuff available to go with the mini split but uh through the jigs and the reels of it all uh when they contacted their insurance their insurance uh, basically told them that without another source of heating um, they would regretfully have to send them out a notice of cancellation because um, mini splits are basically not covered as a primary source of heat. Uh, I was, I, to be frank, I, I was blown away by it. I said, no, that, that can't re- really be right. And, uh, yeah, so I, I reached out to a few people there uh, online, and, uh, yeah, a lot of people had, the, had give, been given the same notification that uh, – if you don't have an additional source of heating in your home as a backup to uh, a mini split, uh, you would be issued a notification of cancellation. How common or even possible is it for a heat pump or a mini split to be the only source of heat in home? Yeah, well, you wouldn't think that it would be overly common, um, but I guess you, you might you might enter into a situation with. Uh, especially some older folks that are looking to move away from oil and unbeknownst uh, if they if they're unaware of that situation they probably would haul out an old have someone haul out the old oil furnace and get rid of the tank that they they can foreseeably not use again and 
Yeah, so I said that there is a few situations like that, and I actually uh, heard of a few people that uh, were building new homes, and uh, that's what they had put in as the primary source, and were unaware of it as well, that the insurance would not cover them. Now, a heat pump, apparently, it's a, a different scenario altogether. And I did talk to several insurance companies as well to try and investigate and see what the lowdown was on it, but uh, with a heat pump, apparently, where it's a duct system, and uh, it's got a it's got a backup uh, coil that will cut in if the primary part of the heat pump does give out. That's fine, and most insurance companies will cover a heat pump, but a mini split is 100%, uh, as near as I could find, uh, there's only one insurance company locally that uh, will cover someone that has primarily just as a... Yeah, I don't even think, uh, like, if I go to buy a heat pump, the uh, company I buy from and that will eventually install it, they'll tell you this cannot be your primary source. I mean, that's the information that they'll they'll give you before you even have to worry about the insurance implications. Yeah. Because yeah. There, are, there are concerns with how reliable, reliable it could be at certain temperatures, for instance. So mini split is generally complementary to whether it be your oil furnace or your electric baseboard heaters, what have you. But the confusion here... There's another listener this morning when I brought it up. He said he went to three different insurance companies to get a quote and an understanding of coverage based on whether the installation of heat pumps and mini splits got three different answers. <laughs> so maybe not even all the insurance companies uh, are on the same page here. Yeah, and, like, and uh, I, I couldn't really get a definitive answer from them as to why there was a, uh, such a difference between a, a mini split and the heat pump. Uh, whether it might be like, I mean, uh, mini splits are, they're, they're, like you said, they're a good complementary source, uh, but depending on the style of your home and the layout and stuff, I mean, you're not getting uh, full coverage in all the rooms in the house. No. Yeah, because it's not a ducted system, right? So my mini split simply blows whatever cooler, warm air in the room that it's in. Now, I can get some impact when I open the door from our main living area to hopefully see the cooler air in the summertime flow down the hallway. But it will never be to the extent where the, the room where it's located. So that's, you know, and when, when you don't have a direct ducting system to the different rooms, then it's never going to be never going to be the primary or only source of heat for the vast majority of the time. Now, if you live in a tiny home, for instance, and you've got a footprint of 450 square feet, you can indeed use something like that as your primary source, albeit taking a risk for, say, for instance, if it hits minus 25 or whatever the case may be. But it would be nice... And helpful if not only insurance companies all were on the same page here, and also for the government in their rebate programs or subsidy programs to have done a bit of that legwork to give you some of the uh, red flags or asterisks where you have to you know make this additional consideration before you go ahead and make the move. Because after the fact is a hard time to find out that you might have an insurance problem. Oh, 100%. And I mean, there's, uh, there was even one guy there that uh, reached out and said that he installs them, and that's the first time that he ever heard of any insurance uh, issues with, with, with mini-split to that extent. But uh, like I said, it's, uh, it, it's, a, it's a hard lesson for a senior that goes ahead and decides to move away from oil and uh, hauls everything out and then decides that the mini-split uh, then puts them uh, uninsurable as a homeowner. It's a tough one to, tough one to grasp. So I just wanted to... Just wanted to get it out there so that it's more common knowledge because it was definitely was something I was unaware of. Me too. Uh, when we installed ours, it had zero implications because nothing else changed in the home. 
We didn't haul yeah. out any baseboard heaters. We didn't haul out the furnace. So it was just a complimentary source of cool and warm air that we chose to install. And it has proven to be very effective and efficient. So, yeah, I, but, you know, insurance is a regulated industry. So maybe between Newfoundland Hydro, uh, Newfoundland, Newfoundland Labrador Hydro, Newfoundland Power, the provincial government at large, help do some of the legwork here so people don't find themselves tripped up because they were enticed by a pot of government money to make any of yeah, these moves. Um, it would also be good to uh, get some kind of answer from the insurance bureau uh, as to what the problem is. I mean, uh, there there's a lot of people in Newfoundland, their sole source of heat is baseboard heat. I mean, if uh, if if that, if they uh, have power gone for three or four days in the dead of winter and they've got no backup source of any kind of heat, well, they're they're going to suffer water damage and burst pipes and all that kind of stuff too. So I I I'm just wondering what the uh, what the issue is uh, with mini split that uh, is causing them to red flag that so much. We'll see if we can get it. We have a few questions for the Insurance Bureau of Canada, including storm surge, and now this one is on the list as well. I appreciate the time and the conversation, James. All right. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. All the best. All right. Bye-bye. Uh, this uh, announcement coming on behalf of the folks, uh, the council and Mayor Button in Port of Basque. If you're a resident that you live on Water Street East, Feltham, Clement Crescent, Baird, Knox Avenue, please do indeed make your way to your home today. Unlock the door so they can go in and do a proper assessment for not only structural but for health and safety reasons inside your home. So Water Street East, Feltham, Clement Crescent, Baird, Knox Avenue, please do indeed open up your door so the inspectors can make their way in. Okay, Paula, I appreciate your patience. She's still there in the queue to talk about public coverage for your eye health. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line four. Paula, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. You? Oh, good. I got an issue with that eye thing with the social services, every three years they pay for it. I uh, got three things going on with my right, right eye. I had syntism in it. I got diabetes and a cataract. So the doctor went and requested that I have my eyes checked every year. Okay. And I sent it into social services. They told me that's not good enough. They need an eye disease. So if you call that not an eye disease, I don't even know what to say there. So I don't know what constitutes an eye disease then. I'm not really sure what that definition would include. Right. They told me diabetes, cataracts, and that, that's not an eye disease. They want to know why I have to get checked every year. So I went down to the clinic, the eye clinic, and they said they don't know what else they're looking for. That's that's what's going on. I got three things going on with my eye, my right eye. And I had to go down and get my eyes checked because I was getting headaches all time. So I went down and this, she said, I need a new prescription. So she wrote me out one. So I sent it to social services and they told me that's not good enough. They want to know what kind of eye disease I have. They told me diabetic, asyntism, and cataract in my right eye and I need new glasses and they're not going to help me out to next year. Well, MCP, just even standard MCP covers eye exams if you need a corrective lens, doesn't it? No. No. Really? Services. No. Got nothing to do with it. And I'm um, dealing with this now over three weeks. An eye exam is 
altogether. Do you want $250 down for me to get my eyes by the time they make them and everything? To be ready, that's 250 Then he wants another $180. I can't afford that petty. Well, I wish I could point you in a better direction. If you've gotten the answers directly from the department, uh, I'm not sure. Well, there's nothing they can do for me until I'm due to get our glasses again. That's not until next year. And I got a strain on my arm with these glasses now because I need a new prescription. And I get headaches and, I mean, I'm a two-type diabetic anyway. Now is that affecting my eye. Well, I suppose, you know, when it comes down to this and you don't have the money and you can't get the coverage from either social services or the the yeah, government at large. Oh, okay. So it's another year's time. All right. So if someone wants to hop in here and say they're willing to help, we can connect you. But at, at this point, that's probably the best we can do. Well, ending we appreciate it. Okay. We'll see what we can do for you, Paula. Okay. Thank you, Patty. You take good care. You have a good day. You too. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. Uh, let's keep going. Let's go to line number one. Say good morning to the PC member for Conception Bay South. He's the opposition house leader. That's Barry Petten. Good morning, Barry. You're on the air. Uh, good morning, Patty. How are you? Not too bad. How about you? I'm good, Patty. But before I start, I guess I, uh, this is not related to my call, but it's important, I guess, to point it out and uh, pass along our thoughts to uh, people in Port of Bass and the, so, you know, the, as a result of the recent Fiona. And, uh, you know, it looks like things are... It's going to take time, but uh, you know we all uh, we're all we're all thinking about them, and uh, you know no different than uh, anyone else should have found. So I just wanted to bring it up, and hope everyone are doing well out there. Absolutely, uh, Patty. Uh, another thing too, I'd like to point out for uh, you know uh, we just recently had our AGM this past week in the Cornerbrook. I just want to shout out to all the all the attendees. It was a well attended convention, one of the largest ones we've had in a number of years. It was the 50th anniversary actually of our first victory when uh, this PC party when Frank Morris formed government in '72. So. A lot of former MHAs and premiers. It was a good event and upbeat and uh, lots of good debate. So I think a shout-out to all the organizers that made it happen and all the attendees for uh, making it a great weekend it was. So, and those two points. But the main reason I'm calling, of course, is the House Assembly is getting ready to uh, convene for the fall setting. And as House Leader, I guess we just wanted to uh, you know, highlight our our concerns and our hopes, I guess, for this setting and, <clears throat> I guess, health care and uh, Cost of living, I mean, it's said every day, every other hour of the day, I think everyone talks about the same two issues, and all parties are saying the same thing, so, which is good to hear. I mean, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, Liberal government has recently, uh, Minister Crocker actually yesterday stated that there is, there, you know, their government's priorities as well, I guess, and our role and our hope, I guess, Patty, for, as an opposition is that they do, we, we have to hold them account to make sure that they do, uh, you know, deal with those issues and bring some much needed change or improvements or what have you uh, and there'll be a lot of great debate on it as well but I mean our part of our role obviously is to try to you know hold them to account to make sure that they follow through on it because ultimately they are the government that will make the final decision and we're the ones that's trying to uh, craft that decision and try to make you know make it as good as good as possible for everyone out there so you know, when I hear when I heard him saying that yesterday, that was encouraging. But uh, so you know, our role you know our role is to highlight uh, those those issues and hope 
you know, government deals with because we have we have serious issues. I mean, our healthcare yeah. healthcare is in crisis, and we all know it. And we're all scrambling for solutions. And the medical professionals are speaking out. And but there's many other issues. Obviously, those two are top of mind. But lots of other things we're going to be talking about in the house too. Well, the, I mean, an effective opposition is critically important in the functioning of government. You know, I can rhyme off things that the government has attempted to do to fix some of the glaring shortcomings in the healthcare system in addition to what's been put forward. And we can go through a few if you like, but what else is the party proposing here? Because I'm at a bit of a loss. I scramble all day long, every day, trying to come up with ideas and solutions or suggestions regarding everything, including healthcare. You know, between the establishment of some collaborative care clinics, and they're going to expand those. And if you ask doctors, they think that team approach is probably the best solution that's been put forward. And that's not me saying it, that's actually doctors saying it. And then some additional money is being floated in front of casual nurses to bring them into long-term uh, permanent full-time jobs. And rural doctor recruitment with some additional rate of pay for it, and all these things. So if we add those up, and they've made some difference, certainly hasn't solved the, slu- the issue in full, but what else is you and your party thinking that can or should be done? Well, you know, one thing that was debated at our convention this past weekend was uh, uh, nurse practitioners, like broadening their scope, but many health professionals, given the opportunity to, to do it, you know, to broaden to the most of their abilities, don't have no, you know, not no restrictions, but give them more uh, more ability to be able to perform their duties, and and you know, and it's a lot of, you know, as we know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, uh, within the billing system, within the full 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 health system, there's always changes coming. And our minister yesterday recently announced uh, increases to. Uh, cataract surgeries. There's a lot of little things that hold back different professions, different health professions outside the main, you know, your doctors and nurses. So there's a lot of things that could take pressure off our acute care, uh, acute care hospitals and that if you could get some of them, some of them people more actively involved and being able to do it to the full scope. And, you know, Patty, something else too, <clears throat> you said it there, and, I, and I've read it, I read it actually yesterday as well. I mean, I've said this, I've spoken on this in my own district, and I mean, when I say my own district, I'm looking at a town of 27,000. And you look at the broad the areas around around CBS and surrounding areas. I mean, you're probably looking at probably upwards of forty thousand people who got a severe family doctor shortage. We have got nothing in CBS. Like, there's no thought. Like, I know there's collaborative clear clinics. They're, they're talking about bringing them here. But right now, as we stand today, you talk about your crisis. Most of them people in this that forty thousand chunk of population, they're going to the emergency rooms to get the you know the basic basic care you'd get from a family doctor. And that's, that's I mean, that's, that compounds the issue. Also, CBS has two private blood collection clinics, and the area this size, I mean, so, you know, we got a lot of areas like CBS that need to, you know, you've got to take the pressure off your, your acute care. I was talking to acute care uh, hospitals. I mean, I was talking to a doctor this weekend, and, I mean, he's ran ragged. He's trying to do virtual clinics for remote areas. He's doing emergency rooms. He said, he's big, you know what his biggest fear he told me was? He's afraid he's going to miss something. And that's that's not you know, and something serious. That's not a nice feeling to have in in your role. You're going home at night wondering, did I miss something that could some something on some individual that could could be fatal? And uh, I mean, that's that's quite serious. And that's just, when I, it was a pretty sobering comment when he said it. So I mean, one of the things, and he, his reference was, we need more. We need to get these collaborative clear clinics up and running. He feels that's that's one answer to it. Then I hear other doctors, and you hear it all the time. I don't know why it's not changing. <clears throat> it's the billing, the billing process, right? The fee for service as opposed to salary. A lot of doctors feel that would work. And you know, and back when they opened the collaborative care clinic out in St. John's, I, I know Minister Aggie was questioning the House Assembly, but I can attest to it. My own personal family doctor told me this past week that their nurse practitioner was taken, went out there. And I'm, Dr. Aggie at the time said that wasn't the case. There was no one removed from anywhere else. But now they can't find a nurse practitioner to go into clinic. So. 
you know, you're only really you're around for people to pay Paul with a lot of this stuff. I mean, we still have the ultimate glaring problem. We have a shortage of all these professionals. And until a lot of that stuff, recruitment seems to me, in my opinion, I'm no doctor or, or health professional, but I really believe recruitment is that's where it got to start. We've got to get more people in there and we've got to change the building. We've got to make it more attractive to be a family doctor. And, and and create more of these clinics. There's no, I mean, I think that you know it may not be bricks and mortar, but we gotta have we gotta have clinics in place right across the province that got to take the pressure off our emergency rooms because right now it's just not sustainable. Of course not. I mean, the issue with the collaborative care clinic, unless they are new entrants or they're being backfilled and replaced if they're taken from one clinic or another, it, then it just gives us the illusion of making headway. But they can indeed be a really effective approach. And healthcare professionals say that. So it's easy enough for me to say it, but folks working as healthcare workers, they say it. So in the fee for service, which is a big problem, we're not paying doctors for the quality of care delivered, we're paying them for the number of people they see, which is two different things. So in a, clear, in a care clinic, if there's a pharmacist as part of the, the, care, the clinic staff, that person cannot do what they're trained to do to deal with uh, prescriptions effectively, efficiently, because they can't bill MCP. So unless we just figure out some of these bare fundamentals, which is work that's ongoing, I know that you've heard the minister say it, some of the le legislative changes that need to be made for maximizing scope of practice and who can bill MCP and who cannot and why they cannot, We've just got to figure that stuff out. It's fine to tell me that a nurse practitioner can set up their own fee-for-service clinic, but then we're just, you know, it's that sort of, it's not slippery slope, it's just that further introduction of two tiers where if I have the money to pay, I can go do, but if I don't, then I'm still in the same system. So billing MCP for, for the type of care offered, whether it be by the NP or the LPN or the pharmacist or whoever, these are just low-hanging fruit. I just don't know why we haven't grabbed them as quickly as it seems to be possible. They do it in other places. I don't know why we can't do it here because just ask the doctors. There's an interesting article today, and that's what it is. Q&A with doctors. Why do you think can help the system? And there are two key areas that they point to. Yeah, absolutely, Patty. I read it as well, and, uh, and over the weekend when I spoke to it, uh, Dr. Merch from Dr. Day echoed the pretty well the same things that were said in that story. So it's not lost on all of them, and they all seem, and my own family doctor actually have said the same thing. So it's, it's pretty well across the board. They all feel the same way, and I'm with you on this low-hanging fruit. I'm, uh, I, I don't understand why some of these things haven't happened before now, and it just astounds me that we're here today still talking about it, and you go out in emergency rooms, and it's, uh, it's not a pretty picture in our emergency rooms across the province when, with the ones that are open. As you know, some are not open all uh, over weekends and shut down, so it's not a good situation. Yeah, we're not there yet. And I don't mean to say or to imply that this is so simple that everyone must be so stupid. No, that's not the case at all, because no, I do think it's a bit more complicated than just the simple phrases we throw at it. But simply because it's complicated doesn't mean it can't be done. You know, that's the trick here with all these issues that we talk about. Complicated issues require complicated solutions, and some of it does take time, but we've been talking about this for a long time. This is not new. It's not just because of the pandemic that we're understanding these things. So let's get at it, and, you know, we'll all be better served with, no. if and when we do it. Last yeah. word to you, Barry. Go ahead. Yeah, no, no, I appreciate your time, Pat. No, I absolutely totally agree. There has to be a willingness to make it happen. I'm sure there's a willingness, but they got to find a way, and the quicker they find a way, the better off we're all going to be. Appreciate the time. Thank you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Okay. Bye. As Barry Petney is the member for uh, CBS and the opposition House leader. And again, no buy. It is not just very simple, fundamental. And the comment that I hear a lot is that, well, they simply don't care. Politicians don't care about you. They don't care if you sink or swim. When Let's just take that one step further. If we're talking about the number one goal for a politician is to get elected, their second goal is to get reelected, right? That's the common phrases that we hear thrown around. 
there is a huge political victory for politicians if they can make your life better, right? That's what it's all about. When we go to the polls, they ask our, we ask ourselves the fundamental question, am I better off now than I was four years ago? If the questions are surrounding health care, and if whatever minister responsible has seen the situation improve, fewer people without a family doctor, wait times reduced in the emergency room, clinics reopen and doctors hired, that's a huge political victory. So whether or not you think they care about you, their fortunes hang in the balance. And in their best interest as an individual or a party, if they can improve in particular the health care system, that's a win. So regardless of what the motivation is, because I don't believe that they simply don't care if you sink or swim or live or die, if they can make it better, that's going to be part of the campaign ads. You will see that data shared far and wide. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, there's a protest out outside the NAEP headquarters. We'll hear what that's about right after this. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show. Midnight on your VOCM. And welcome back. Let's go to line number two. Caller, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to tell a little story. Uh, I'm here right now today on uh, NAEP's uh, sidewalk. Uh, I'm, it's not a group protest. I'm doing this alone. But, however, I don't feel I am alone. Um, I've been um, filing grievances over the years for various matters through NAEP. I was a correction officer. And... Uh, the grievance has led to the end of my career, to summarize, and uh, 10 years have passed, and the grievances have still not been actioned uh, or dealt with. And um, yeah, so he- here I am, I've been ten-, 10 years screaming at night to-, to do something, and hundreds of emails, meetings with, with the NAE president. My file has been passed from executive to executive for years. And uh, I'm here on the sidewalk, and I want to I want to point out that I, I never resigned, or sorry, I, I was never uh, fired. Um, I was denied in 2012 all driving privileges of any government vehicle because of what? As, as correction officers, because uh, the superintendent of prisons and the assistant superintendent and the captain of OHNS at HMP found out that I was on an antidepressant. So that that has been investigated and found it to be true. And to the officials, but I can't give names, but the officials who uh, the superintendent and assistant at the time admitted this and reports, it's been investigated, found it. It was grieved in 2012. Nate still hasn't touched it. It's not dealt with, and uh, I've been battling this for 10 years. And the reason I'm calling here now is not just to rant about my story, but I believe through through people I've spoke to over the years that there are a large number or a significant number of current and former NAEP members from various walks of life out there who have serious stories of, of not being represented or... As high as corrupt, corruption and, and setups, uh, all, all kinds of horrible things. I believe the people are out there, and I just want to say I'm here uh, in protest of this sort of thing, uh, in particular my case. And if anyone has her- horrific stories, members, former members of NAEP, 
I want to invite them to, to come join me. Uh, I'm doing this alone, so I'm only doing four hours per day when I can. And, um, yeah, so anyone who has a horrific story and can't get it out there and and wants to come down and share their story with me, they don't have to protest. Just, just make a connection with me. Uh, just a couple of things here. So... What's the process when you file a grievance with your shop steward? Isn't there just a, a set timeline for it to be followed through on, to be heard and adjudicated? Like, isn't that just, it just happens? Or uh, is there some sort yeah. of personal relationship or problem between you and the union or you and the shop steward, which meant that they just ignored you? So I, th- I thought it was just fundamental. When you filed a grievance, the grievance had to be dealt with. Uh, yeah, it, it should be either dealt, well, dealt with, uh, either actioned, or the member should be notified why it won't be actioned. Like, there has to be a follow-up. And there wasn't. And, and you're right, I was dropped and ignored. There's no question. Otherwise, a decade later, I wouldn't be here. But, uh, yeah, you know, sometimes it can take years to have an arbitration. Three, four, five years. That's common, especially for corrections. But uh, five or six is a lot. I'm 10. And uh, NAEP has agreed to request arbitration from justice as of about four months ago, after after nearly 10 years of me pushing. And, uh, of course, it, it only makes sense that, given that it's been 10 years, the department is saying, this, this guy has been gone from the workplace where are these grievances coming from? Like, they won't, the department won't even acknowledge the grievances because they've been left so long. As you can appreciate, it's, you know, if you're an employer and someone comes to you 10 years later with, with grievances, you know? Yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know how anything can drag on this long. The only time I've heard about these significant delays and grievances is because the companies wouldn't participate, for instance. You know, we had the big contract issue and the job action up in Labrador at the mine, and one of the things on the table was the company wanted the grievances to be thrown out. So I've only ever heard about it like that as opposed to I'm a rank-and-file dues-paying member, I file a formal grievance, and nothing ever happens. I'm not told why it's not happening, or nor am I told about when it might happen. I've just never quite heard these types of stories, to be honest. Yeah, well, the grievance I named just now to you is, is in a group of five others that over, over the years that led to the end of my career. And, and none of them, uh, Nate actually took the position in, in 2016 that there were no grievances. And I actually presented copies of three of uh, four of them, and, and one there's no record of, Nate Blasbeth, even though there's emails, I have emails from the superintendent about the grievance, but Nate maintains that there, there is no grievance. So, yeah. yeah. I, I met with the president of Nate maybe, I don't know, three, four months ago, and, and I have him on the record. I recorded him as saying... Uh, that there is a problem with grievances in workplaces being filed, and they don't ever make it to Nate. Don't know why that would be. I mean, we actually were looking to spend some time with uh, Jerry Earl here on the show talking about the contract ratification votes and the three outstanding bargaining units, but this can certainly be part of it. You know, because we talk about things like timelines to be set for putting mediators or conciliators or arbitrators in place so that job action strikes or lockouts don't uh, 
pro- are prolonged like they seem to be these days. But I can put this on the list because if I'm paying my dues, part of what I'm paying my dues for is protection by my union if I have a formal grievance and a real legitimate argument to make. Why isn't it being handled by the union? I would have no earthly idea, but I, we can talk to Jerry about it. Sure, sure thing. Um, also, is there any way, I'm not sure how your show works there, uh, am I able to give my, my number or if anyone wants to contact me with a story? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. If you want to uh, if you want to give it out here, we can do that. Dave also has it, too, if you just want to leave it private. So if anyone calls, wants to connect with you, we can share your number if you want. That's no problem. Can I just say it? Fire away. My cell number for any members out there with serious situations is 709-770-3959. And I'm on Nape Sidewalk till 2 o'clock today. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Good luck. Thanks. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's been a while since I've been a member of a union, and I don't think I ever filed a, a grievance of any sort, but I thought it was pretty fundamental stuff. I do it. It's formalized. There's follow-up, whether it be we're doing it, we're not doing it, and here's why we're not doing it, but to not have any information, I think, is pretty bizarre. Anyway, let's go ahead and take a break. Today's a good one to get on the program. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211. Elsewhere, toll-free long distance, one 888 590-VOCM, which is 86. I want to say a special good morning to Johnny Slaney. We're taking a break, and then we're coming back. Welcome back to the program. Just very quickly, you know, people talk about who can and cannot write a prescription. I totally forgot about this. But, for instance, if you're a TELUS customer, there's an application you can download on your phone called uh, Health TELUS Health My Care. And through it, you can connect with someone like a nurse practitioner and to see a prescription refilled. I've never used it, but a listener just sent an email along saying that's exactly what they have done. So no going to the emergency room to see your prescription refilled. Just use it on your phone. I don't know how effective that might be for some of you, but it's probably worth a try, especially if you're simply looking for somewhere to go to get a prescription refilled because not good enough. And also in the healthcare world, we know it's not that long ago that the entire system was hacked into. And we don't really have a whole lot of information about exactly where we are in rebuilding the system and whether or not the numbers of people over a long period of time, their personal information was hacked into. I don't know how many people have signed up for credit protection, what have you. But if you want to share your story, you can do exactly that. And then curiously, a story I read this morning is that there's a decade-old privacy breach uh, lawsuit that was settled out of court between Western Health and a class of about a 1,000 people. Now, unfortunately, some of those people that were part of the class, about 100 of them have died. So now there's been a cash settlement, an award agreed upon between the two groups, the class itself and Western Health. But in this circumstance, it was an individual, a looky-loo, a nosy person who simply went in and accessed people's personal information, private medical files. Of course, the employee got fired, but... A decade later, the settlement was made. I didn't even know if I was aware that there was this type of action in play. That said, is there going to be any type of class discussion regarding the cyber tech hack, cyber attack of of Meditech, pardon me? Because there's some big looming questions that we're really not sure we have definitive answers to. For instance, were the red flags and the warnings in place for years prior, and we don't know what kind of activity or additional safeguards were uh, put in place because of the warnings, because we're told there were warnings, but the next step would be what did people do about the warnings? And were the vulnerabilities exactly how some hacker got into our system that someone said, hey, you got to do something about this. And years later, 
nothing was done, and there's where we find ourselves. It's an interesting one. And you see what's going on in the House of Commons. And we're all talking about, like Barry Pettin is the opposition House leader, talking about getting back into the House of Assembly, which is going to be at the Colonial Building. And we can talk about the merit of that investment or spend of uh, $15 million of provincial money and an additional $8 million from the feds making 23 total. It was put first started back in 2011. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah, House of Commons. And affordable affordability issues. So... You know, I don't know how big a deal it is to talk about uh, increasing, and it's really minor increases in EI contributions and in CPP, and the debate is raging as to whether or not there are a tax or not. But there is the concept of the carbon tax and the increase that will indeed pass in the House of Commons on that front, and that is that's a, a fair debate for people to be having. Now, the province is still in negotiations with the federal government in our own bilateral agreement on carbon tax and the process or the plan that we use here in this province. So it's sort of a dog's breakfast. There's four provinces in the country that use the federal scheme, and they're online for rebates. And then there's the cap-and-trade system, and then there's the way we've done it here. And no rebate, of course, it gets applied to the price of fuel. The exemption that is mandatory, you've heard me mention, because we can talk about mini splits and heat pumps and insurance and all those complicating, uh, complicating factors, but the carbon tax was not applied to home heating fuels. There's some worry that that's not going to proceed like that in the future with whatever renewed contract we come up with or deal or arrangement we make with the federal government. That is going to be an enormous problem here, absolutely enormous problem if we are going to pay a carbon tax, which is increasing on home heating fuels. Because the whole concept of changing your behaviors with uh, the amount of time you drive or carpool or downsized vehicles, whatever the case may be, there's behavioral issues we can talk about for the most part with gasoline, for instance, but not with heat in your home. You know, there's some moves you can make to be a bit more efficient. You can upgrade the insulation and windows and doors and things like that, but they all cost money. There's long-term return, but if we're paying a tax to heat our home with one fuel or another, then the people who are feeling the pinch today and worried about the pending winter, their worries will just be further exacerbated. So there's a lot of concern and a lot of people keeping an eye on that particular issue. Let's take a break for the newscast. When we come back, we'll be speaking with you about what? That's up to you. Don't go away. Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break. Welcome back to the program. Well, every now and then, you know, you wonder how frequently someone might tune into the show when I read some of the emails that I get. But this one was, I I know you love hockey and you talk about it way too much, which, okay, that's your opinion. But you refuse to talk about the Hockey Canada scandal, which is patently simply not true because I have talked about it, and it's gotten even worse. So we know that there was a settlement of some $3.5 million uh, between Hockey Canada and a woman who said she was sexually assaulted by several members of the 2018 World Junior Team. Then there was the understanding that Hockey Canada was taking fees from us as parents and players, and I was one of those uh, dues-paying parents, and I still remain involved in minor hockey. So it turns out they didn't just have one set-aside fund or a slush fund or what have you. They had two multi-million dollar funds for paying out, not simply only for sexual abuse, but for other matters that were taken to, that where Hockey Canada was taken to task. So it was bad enough we found out they had one. 
And I mean, and shame on Hockey Canada to keep these types of things quiet when we know the prevalence of violence and sexual violence in minor sports, and it gets even worse when you get to the more competitive levels, move off into amateur sport. So now, apparently there's some 15 investigations ongoing. So the minister, minister responsible at the federal government level, because there's a big transfer, I think it's like $8 million from the federal government to Hockey Canada annually, is that she has an extremely difficult job. I think it's Minister St. Ange, if I remember correctly off the top of my head. So I'm not afraid to talk about it, because we can talk about the good and the life skills you can learn and playing for the name on the front of the jersey, not the one on the back of the jersey, and fun and being fit and have a healthy lifestyle. Yeah, that's all part of team sports. But the unfortunate reality, and we've seen it, and it's not just hockey. It's not just hockey. It's across the board where we've seen stories, whether it be like the enormous scandal at the uh, U.S. Gymnastics Association, or now what we see with Hockey Canada. They've kept some of the same people in place, though, in leadership positions. No, not good enough. It got to tear it down and rebuild it from the ground up. It is truly disgraceful that so many of the fees have been redirected from Hockey Canada programs to make it better and to offer a better product to the coaches and players and managers and families, but millions upon millions of dollars set aside. Like the second fund that they uncovered, what they're calling a participant's legacy trust fund, whatever label that implies is beyond me, but the second fund, uh, the National Equity Fund, $7.1 million. You know, to know that the problems are so persistent or prevalent that you needed two separate funds to deal with allegations and settlements, issues regarding sexual violence is truly maddening. It is. And as someone who loves the game and has been involved with the game most of my life, this is disheartening and it is infuriating. So no emailer, we're not afraid to talk about it because we will indeed give a plug to young athletes or young people doing good things in any walk of life here on the local scene provincial scene national international scene but we're not afraid to talk about these issues because they're real it's happening and it's terrible the social media outrage on this front is justifiably angry and loud you know people saying that they've got to be held to account in some form and you're absolutely right so anybody who was involved in a leadership position with the creation of these pots of money, knowing what they were established for, should be removed immediately. A hundred percent. Gone. Don't let the door hit you. Rebuild it so that Canadians can have faith in what is an institution. It's a huge, there's a huge love of the sport across the country. It's been tarnished. It can be fixed. But boy, oh boy, to know that it's going on, and so many of these investigations are ongoing, and settlements being paid, and money's being set aside for this, knowing that it's going to happen again. It's simply not good enough. So we're not afraid to talk about it. And if you want to chime in on it, you can do that too. Let's go to line one. Paul, you're on the air. Uh, good morning, Petty. Morning to you. <coughs> nothing, wrong, nothing wrong talking about hockey, me, buddy. Well, you talk about whatever you like. No, uh, no. Actually, I always want to send you in that coin set back in June when Mom died. Oh, listen, thanks for that. <laughs> I really enjoyed it. Everyone in the house did. Oh, did they? Yeah. Yeah, Mom passed on. Dad's gone, but uh, my brother came down for the funeral. He got the last two I had, so... Well, actually, I got one set there that's got one gone out of it. So I don't know what I'm going to do with that. <laughs> well, just yeah. so people, for a bare description, there's a bunch of commemorative coins in a 
in a setting where they've got a picture of the player and then the commemorative coin with their face on it and a bunch of stars of that particular era, basically 70s and 80s, if I remember correctly, the most of those players. I really like it. It's, uh, <laughs> it's in my office at home, so thanks for that. Oh, no problem. Uh, the reason why I called you, Patty, I was telling Dave there, uh, I wanted to mention about NL housing. <coughs> uh, across the street from where I'm too, Patty, I won't say what, what street I'm on, but there's a series of uh, townhouses there, hey? There's one there, Patty, that nobody's lived in for six months. But there's curtains in the window, and there's people go in there every two weeks when the checks come out. And they go up to get in the mailbox and get their mail. Then they go away again for for two weeks. Every two weeks, like clockwork. And uh, <clears throat> so I phoned in uh, uh, Canada Drive, in our housing. They said, no, but that place has been vacant for six months. So, <clears throat> all right, boy, that's fine. Because I said, no, because there's... There's a young crowd getting in there every two weeks. It sounds like a police matter. Hold on, I'll put you on to somebody. <clears throat> so he put me on to a housing officer, and they were all nice and friendly. Took the information. I gave him a number. I said, well, I even got the license plate number if you want. No, I don't want it. So that was fine, Patty. Weeks later, I called again about the same thing. I said, boy, look, uh, the number I give you, I told him the number. They looked it up, and he said, boy, look, there's nobody in that townhouse. It's empty. The men are there doing work on it. There's nothing in there. And I said, sir, I live right across the street. Uh, there are curtains in the window. There's, every two weeks, they go in, they get to bring stuff out, they go to the community mailbox and get their mail. That's been going on for six months. There's actually nobody living in the townhouse. And he was almost getting mad at me. Almost telling me what I, what I, I know the difference, eh? <clears throat> well, I said, all right, boy, I'm going to do one better. I'm going to phone the Federation building, John Abbott. <clears throat> now, of course, I couldn't get hold of John Abbott. This lady came on. She didn't identify herself. I gave her all the information. She looked it up. She said, no, that's not vacant. That that's uh, there's somebody supposed to be living there. I said, my darling, if they're living there, there's nobody living there for the last six months. So she took all the information again, and said she'll contact the, a housing officer. But the reason, but the the whole thing about this, Patty, you got people calling into your show almost on a weekly basis, saying, Patty, boy, look, I got no place to live. There was a lady phoned you a few weeks ago. She lived in the middle of a car. An elderly woman. Yeah, we got her sorted out. And there's another lady called in. She's crying in tears. Her house, her house got on fire or something, and she. They put her in a hotel for a while. But, I mean, Patty, this is just an example. Like, the left foot doesn't know what the right foot is doing. Confederate, uh, Canada Drive getting mad at me, telling me what I know. There's nobody actually living in the, in the townhouse, Patty. There's nobody living there. Well, the grass is not even cut or anything. Yeah, squatters is a thing, right? And we know it to be true. The folks who are looking for, whether it be a place to drink beer or whatever they're doing, you know, in out of the watchful eye of the cops or neighborhood watch. No, they got a key, Patty. Well, I don't know where they got the key, but, th you know, they're still squatting. Whether you break in or so the last resident gave you the key, it still, I think, adds up to a squatter or someone who's trespassing to a property they don't own. But this happens all the time. And and like I say, with the, the uh, Canada Drive, boy, that's been vacant for six months. Our men are doing work. The Federation Building, no, sir, there's somebody living there. I say it in the back of my mind. What about if they're actually living somewhere else and collecting a check for that address? And I thought, too, Patty, why don't they send somebody down if the place is vacant? I mean, can Canada Drive can send somebody down, which they did, Patty, to be honest with you. There was a man came down in one of the white vans, and all he did, he went up to the door, he looked at the lock. Now, I mean, if the place is supposed to be empty, according to them, why didn't they get a key and go in, Patty? There's curtains on the window and everything, and there's actually stuff in the house because they're always bringing something out of the house. So, I mean, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, the left hand doesn't know what, like, why, all they can do is look it up on a computer, can't they, Patty? 
Uh, yes, they know whether or not someone is living in a Newfoundland Labrador housing yeah. property, of course. That's the easiest thing in the world. I mean, I know it's none of my business, but I mean, where well, you got so many people trying to get into uh, housing, here's an example. Six months, Patty, six months. And they're arguing with me, saying, boy, that's vacant. And the Federation building say, no, it's not. But there's nobody living there, Patty. There's something going on, right? There's something going on. And, like, they don't want to look into it. And I don't know what, there's nothing more I can do. But, I mean, I, I've done my part, right? They're almost getting mad at me now, Patty. Yeah, they're just. Telling me what I, already, I know is not, is not the truth. I know. I live right across the street, Patty. Understood. So, I mean, the first thing that pops into my mind is they would also have a key, go in and see what's going on. Yep. And yep. if they do indeed see that people have been in and out of that property that's supposed to be vacant, change the locks. Yeah. I don't know. I know, I know, I don't know why they're me, but there's nothing more I can do. I mean, other than writing a letter to John Abbott himself. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's sad. I mean, there's something going on because for, for them to say, boy, it's vacant for six months, Federation buildings say, no, it's not. But there's nobody living there, Patty. But they're getting in every two weeks when the checks come out. They get their mail, community mailbox, they go in, they bring stuff out, gone in for two weeks. This will go on for six months. I will follow up on it because there's other questions. That, for instance, we're still trying to get updated numbers about the number of vacant uh, housing properties, how long they've been vacant, whether or not there's ongoing work, what's the schedule it is for reopening, because there's big questions being asked, especially up in Labrador where there's so many of the units are vacant yeah. and no good reason to understand as to why. So it's either they're going to fix them, tear them down, or get people in them. There's not too many different options here. Use them or don't. So we're going to try to get that answer as well, Paul. But I appreciate you bringing this one up this morning. Anything else you want to say? Oh, no, me, buddy. I'm glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed the coin set anyway. I really did. I appreciate that very much. Okay, buddy. Take care. Bye. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, every now and then someone drops off something uh, interesting for me. And that particular coin set, there's like 16 or 20 coins in there representing some of the big star players of the day. So it's kind of cool, to be honest. All right, uh, let's go ahead and take a break. But, of course, House Assembly resumes the fall sitting tomorrow from the Colonial Building. Curiously, we haven't had anyone wanting to pass comment about the amount of money spent to renovate the colonial building. I know it feels like a waste of money, but sometimes some preservation of heritage is not only required, this can also now move on to be a functional facility, whether it be for tours or other people's business being attended to. It was the home of the legislature until the 50s sometime. So anyway, they spent uh, $15 million of provincial money. The federal government chipped in with $8 million. I think the renovations were ongoing since 2011. So, you know, people are not wrong to say there's a lot of different needs here in the community, and that $23 million can go a long way on a variety of fronts. That's true. But, of course, the problems today aren't what they were, or they're much different now and probably a bit worse now than they were back in 2011 when the idea was first broached. The biggest problem I had with it, I understand if you want to talk about the money, but when they cleared all those big, beautiful trees to pretend that it's 100 years ago, I mean, why? Why do that? It was That one didn't make any sense to me at all. But with them resuming, if you'd like to put a few things on the agenda that you want to see or hear asked, whether it be by members of the opposition parties, either the NDP or the PCs, we're happy to do it. Also, there's some suggestions coming in about what might be the proper approach taken by the province out on the southwest coast of the island. We are going to get an update at 1 o'clock today. The Premier and other ministers will be addressing the media. If you want to put a question in the minds of whether it be our reporter covering it or anybody else listening to the program, you can put that forward as well. And 
we're actively looking for spots where people are still connecting with me. They want to make a donation. And many of the things now are the items that I've mentioned on the show. First aid kits or baby diapers or bedding or nail clippers and the fundamentals, right? Razors and shaving cream. Some of those things uh, outside of the clothing, which they've been, they've got a lot of. So we're trying to find out where you can drop those things off anywhere in the province. So again, if you're someone who's in the know or you're working on it yourself, if you let us know, we'll let the listening public know. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, we're speaking with you. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Well, February 14th this year, not because it was Valentine's Day, but for some people it was an extremely controversial day because it was the day where it was the first time in our history the federal government had invoked the Emergency Measures Act. We all know why. It was to deal with the week-long protest, rally, blockade, whatever you want to refer to it as, with the protest that was taking place in the nation's capital in particular, and not necessarily just the only two land, the land border uh, blockades that were put in place. So anyway, the Prime Minister, I guess the federal liberal government, invoked the Emergency Measures Act. So it automatically triggered a public inquiry that's going to be held by the Public Order Emergency Commission. So they've yet to make the uh, list of witnesses a public document, but the concept is thought to be that the Prime Minister will be, quote-unquote, invited to testify, and the PMO says that he's open or welcoming the idea. And from where I sit, the Prime Minister absolutely has to testify in front of that public inquiry. At one point, the terms of reference being suggested by the federal government was simply to talk about the actions of the protesters, as opposed to including how and why the government arrived at the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act, the Emergency Measures Act. And it's not martial law, it's the Emergency Measures Act. It gave them all kinds of different opportunities to see vehicles removed, you know, trucks that were blocking neighborhood access, and to clear the crowd after days and weeks of telling them you have to go. So it happened. Now, since the government had really put the prime focus simply on the protesters as opposed to including their own decision-making process in this inquiry, which is a huge mistake, we have to know a lot more about who and what layers or levels of law enforcement requested this extraordinary measure. I call it extraordinary because it's the first time in history it's been invoked. But now the government, based on a request coming from Paul Rouleau, he's the head of the public inquiry, is to waive any cabinet confidence over any documents relating to the invocation. Makes all the sense in the world. Because we need to have a bit more of a clearer picture painted. Canadians have been polled far and wide about what the government did uh, at that day, at that point, to stop the (laughs) occupation of Ottawa. You know, the Canadians having been polled, and I don't think we've got every single tidbit of information required to have firm determination on yay or nays on this front, but every poll I've seen supported the government's actions here. The support for what went on, I think, shrunk over time as the protest uh, dragged on as long as it did. So it better result in the Prime Minister testifying and Marco Mendocino or Bill Blair or anybody else that was involved in the final decision because it's an important one. Things like the Emergency Measures Act are not for the faint of heart. It is not to be used or overused or abused. Now, that's not to suggest it might be in the future, but when something happens for the first time in history, we really all deserve all the answers to all the questions that are being posed, whether or not you support it, whether or not you're on either side of that particular coin, the public inquiry has got to be deep dive comprehensive. It can't simply be about what the protests looked like, who was involved, 
any other ulterior motives. And some of those things have been fairly dishonest anyway, haven't they? You know, to boil it down to is nothing more than bouncy castles and smiles and hugs and winks and nods is not really painting the clear picture. It doesn't include everything that we saw. And it's not to paint the entirety with one brush, negative or positive. But And the same thing can be said for how the government handled it. We really don't know. Like law enforcement, which I think just did a dreadful job, period, with, through the entirety of it, maybe a little bit better job on the blockades at the land borders. And even on that front, I think there's a lot yet to be understood exactly about what that meant insofar as cost. What did it cost the Canadian economy? The initial reports were the billions and billions and billions and billions, and it may be not the case. There's been some further evaluation done, and it's maybe not as significant as uh, it was initially thought to be. So if you want to talk about that particular hearing, which was initially supposed to start on the 19th of September and run until the 28th of this month, now, due to a couple of different factors, it's going to start on the 13th of October and wrap up public hearings on the 25th of November. So if you want to have your input and chime in on that particular public inquiry, which I think is going to be interesting, to hear the testimony and get a bit more, uh, understand a bit more about exactly what went on. Then some of the arguments being made, of course, in the House of Commons, beyond carbon tax and employment insurance and Canadian the Canadian pension plan, is things about natural resources and what it could mean for the economy, you know? So LNG, is, you're going to hear nothing, but nothing more about any issue under the sun regarding energy resources than LNG. That's going to be the focus here. And the thought is that the industry has been crushed by the federal liberals. Okay, you can talk about that from whatever angle. Fact of the matter is, there's more oil being produced in this country now than ever, than ever before. But the concept of what about LNG, I get it. It's going to be a big part of the future, whether it be for the issues in Europe to not have a reliance on Russian petrochemicals, but it's just going to be a transition fuel. We know it to be true. So in this province, people will ask, well, how come no one's producing gas offshore? Now, the province, through Minister Parsons, says they're trying to figure out a formal structure for a, a, a natural gas royalty, and that's one thing. But nobody offshore, none of the operators, I haven't heard one peep about them clamoring to want to produce the gas. Some of it's just straight up based on cost and profitability. So you either liquefy it at sea or you pipe it to the mainland, to the island, for then for it to be distributed, whether it be to be liquefied or compressed and then sent to whatever market we can find for it. But on the federal level, I'm a little bit confused with the squabbles surrounding LNG. Here's why. There is currently zero proposals for any either exploration or production of either gas or oil in the country in front of the Environment Impact Assessment Agency of Canada. Zero. The last one that was in front of it, of course, was uh, Baden Ore Project here, the Equinor find off our shores in the Flemish Pass. But currently zero. There is an approval for an LNG facility in Kitimat, B.C. But my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, even though that approval is in place, the company... The investors aren't working towards actually doing anything about it. So I'm just a little bit confused about some of the arguments being made about LNG, but if you've been following along on that front and you'd like to share your opinion on it, we're happy to take it. But there is an opportunity there. It's absolutely true. Some of the projects that have been applied for, I think the total is 18 over the last, uh, I think it's decade plus, some of them were withdrawn because either they didn't have the capital to proceed and or their business model didn't work, but some of them were simply rejected. We also know that's a fact, but if you want to chime in on that front, we can do it. 
And then I've got two people in particular, and I'll leave their names out, but they are all about what happened and who's the saboteur of the Nord Stream pipeline. I don't know who did it. I don't know. I've heard the arguments on both sides suggesting it was the United States themselves. You know, some of that based on comments coming from now President Biden regarding if there's an invasion, they will stop or end or do something about Nord Stream. And are the Russians doing it to purposefully escalate and to fracture the Western alliance, what have you? I don't know who did it, but these two listeners in particular, they won't call on it. I don't know why. I get lots of emails, and I appreciate them. Keep them coming, openline.vocm.com. But do us all a favor and consider getting in the queue and on the air to share your feelings because for these two uh, people in particular, they have real opinions, staunch ones at that on Nord Stream 2. Let's go ahead and take a break. When we come back, time for you. Don't go away. Saturday morning, join us for the Irish Newfoundland Show. Send your request to irishnl at vocm.com or submit them online at vocm.com. Welcome back to the show, but let's go. Line number one, say good morning to the NDP member for St. John Centre. He's the interim leader of the NDP. That's Jim Jin. Good morning, Jim. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Thank you for having me on this beautiful day. Happy to have you on the show. And as we know, the fall sitting resumes tomorrow. But in this circumstance, it will resume in the Colonial Building. I know you've made some comments about the inappropriate spend, although it was first proposed back in 2011, and we know things have changed dramatically since then. But what are your thoughts on going to the Colonial Building? You know, uh, I, uh, Patty, I would say that a lot of the issues I, I'm dealing with, and that I would say other MHAs, uh, in their, uh, are, are issues that just didn't happen overnight. They've been building, okay? So I look at it, uh, 23 million, I think it is. That's 8 million federal, uh, 15 million um, provincial funds, and yet that to restore that building, and I understand the significance of it in terms of our the, our political history, but you know, I'm looking here. We've got 120 odd units of Newfoundland Labrador housing uh, uh, units, uh, house, units uh, use house. Sorry, my tongue tied now. Housing units uh, that would cost, I guess, anywhere to get them back into the market. They're not uh, they're not currently being uh, can't be occupied because they're going to require major repairs. That would come to 10. I think my estimation about 10.5 million on the outside, and that would certainly go a long way to alleviate the housing crisis that we are facing here. I don't know anywhere else in the province. I know up in uh, Labrador. I know from talking to Leela and Jordan. Yes, in La- Northern Labrador and uh, uh, Labrador West, it, it's an issue here. But I can tell you, I, I'm living it. I'm seeing it. I'm uh, hearing it from people. So, to me, I think it comes down to about priorities and about making choices, and that are going to lead to better outcomes. But uh, I, I think, if anything else, in this um, in this session. We're going to have to deal with uh, affordability, the cost of living, uh, the uh, issues that uh, that that are probably driving um, uh, the our, up our healthcare costs as well, uh, and alleviating some of the real problems. Well, it's from my point of view, from our party's point of view, is about putting people first. Fair enough. So, as I said to Barry Petten, the opposition House leader for the PCs. Is that, you know, the role of opposition parties is extremely important in the functioning of a democracy. It just is. Some people will take it as complaining for the sake of complaining, critiquing for the sake of, but also as part of not only holding government's feet to the fire, from where I sit as a taxpaying member of the public, 
I don't care who has the good ideas anymore. I simply do not. I just want good ideas. I want them acted on. So with what the government's doing, what is the NDP bringing forward for some of the solutions that can be found to some of our problems? Let's start with health care because that's, I think, uh, front of mind. On top of affordability, health care is the big one. So what more could or should be done? Look, we, we're seeing a, a flurry of announcements right now. Why now? We're in a crisis. A lot of this could have been headed off in uh, in dealing with the. This is not this not something that happened overnight. Okay, so re, really we've got to stop being in a reactionary mode, uh, and we've got to start being proactive. So right now, I you've heard the stories. I don't need to rehash them. But you know, with the the people's emergency uh, rooms and the uh, and the lack of a, a, a primary health care providers, but. Going forward in healthcare, let's take a look at, at, at three things then as to what we need to do to get these virtual care, uh, virtual emergency rooms up and running. What do we need to make sure that the uh, uh, that the ambulance system is as robust as possible to deal with this, uh, uh, to make sure that any anyone and everyone who is in need of uh, emergency care has that access. And more importantly, Patty. Uh, we've got the if if collaborative team clinics are are the are what we're going for, then we need to make sure that we have the people and the resources in place. People should not be waiting, as in one constituent of mine, since January to hear uh, hear back from uh, from the, the uh, you know uh, the 811 line, I guess, as to whether or not they've uh, whether or not they're they're actually on the list. I've been, I've, my wife and I have had our names on uh, looking for, uh, to, to register for one of these clinics since May. That's unacceptable. So if you want to look forward, here's where we need to go. Yes, let's recruit the, uh, put the uh, recruitment in, uh, incentives out there. But for God's sake, it can, it can't be this way any longer. We, we've called for a human, re, uh, comprehensive human resources strategy for over a year. This is something that I, I hope all whoever is in government learns. You just can't keep putting this off and 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 uh, cheating the system of resources and expect it to function. You got to think long term here. You know, th- th- some of the issues regarding the professionals themselves and collaborative care clinics and scope of practice—that's all. I think absolutely, extremely important, required conversations. But how do we get at things about the nature of the workplace? Because it's not all just about staffing. I was a little confused by some of the statements coming, for instance, from CEO Ken Baird at Eastern Health about unanticipated work-life balance struggles for staff, because some of this is not just the moving parts that are healthcare professionals. This is about the type of workplace where they go to work each day. How do we address that politically? Look, you know, uh, I, I know uh, your wife is a, a school administrator. You know that anyone in the public system there, uh, regardless of educa- education or health, they are uh, they are under enormous stress. My my chief, our new chief of staff, just came from a long-term care facility where the workers are now have a, a mandated 20-hour shift. Think about that in terms of how good, uh, how well that person, no matter how professional they are, is going to function. Uh, I think the fact is that you know you, it, uh, the, pro- the problem with the system, is, uh, in many ways, is, is the failure to acknowledge the fact that workers need a, a work-life balance if they're going to be healthy to uh, and, and responsible people on the work site and in their family. So you can't be making comments like this. Though, though I, I thought for sure after the pandemic, with all the outpouring of praise to our frontline workers, this kind of talk would cease. But apparently it hasn't. But it's got to start, and you've got to start having people there who are looking at people as opposed to, well, zero-based budgeting and uh, budget-based decisions. If it was all about money, we'd have the problem solved. 
Look, uh, and, and I can tell you right now uh, with regards to housing, uh, there is federal funding and, and uh, uh, agreement that the province needs to act on to get new bills started right now. If they want to look at co uh, uh, cooperative housing, cooperative, the cooperative housing uh, organization here, the one thing they need is land. They've got money to build. There are options there. Government just there's the Grace General Hospital site sitting over there, and and that would be crying out for uh, organizations like Channel to develop. And uh, if they just simply made the decision that we're going to put uh, we're going to put, uh, focus on building new units, and we could eliminate the problem. Otherwise, Patty, what we're doing is we're spending an enormous the province is spending an enormous amount of money in uh, in housing people in in emergency shelters at a significant cost uh, you could probably build multiple houses for what uh, for what they're, uh, they're they're paying in, in uh, emergency shelters so I think if anything else my uh, final word with it is look let's start put investing in people I think the savings uh, are going to pay off and we're going to be better off for it all around I appreciate the time this morning Jim thank you Thank you. Appreciate it. Take care. Bye-bye. It's Jim Din, NDP member for St. John's Centre and the interim leader of the NDP. Let's go ahead and take a break. So we've talked about police oversight. I spoke about the Civilian Oversight Committee making their comments about the RCMP and the handling or the bungling or the lack of seriousness given to folks who come forward with a complaint regarding sexual assault. We know that the province has established uh, the CERT, the Serious Incident Response Team, but there's also a group out there called First Light, and they're talking about additional uh, layers of oversight for the RNC, civilian-led. We'll see exactly what that means when we talk with the executive director, Stacey House. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Say good morning to the executive director at First Light. That's Stacey House. Good morning, Stacey. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Welcome to the show. I suppose I should add First Light to St. John's Friendship Center so people know exactly who we're speaking with this morning. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So I talk about law enforcement and police oversight. I thought it was a good idea for the creation of the Serious Incident Response Team. But, of course, that organization deals with things after the fact. Give us some idea about some of the key components of your presentation to the Justice Minister. Yeah, so today is the National Day of Action for Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls. And First Voice released a final report of the First Voice Working Group on Police Oversight. And so within this report, there are a number of recommendations that we are suggesting to be implemented, charting a path forward to create a comprehensive and proactive system of civilian-led oversight and police oversight in Newfoundland and Labrador. What would civilians do on this front, and what kind of expertise would need to be brought to bear for it to be an effective organization? Yeah, so obviously the civilians would have to be trained. Um, you know, we broke down this report into several groups. Uh, the establishment of a civilian-led board of commissioners for police oversight, which is politically neutral, independent of police, and it reflects the province's diverse communities. Um, you know, across Canada, there are other civilian-led police oversight boards, but not here in this province. And so they will be responsible for setting high-level policy direction to all police forces that operate in Newfoundland and Labrador, uh, which would include setting policies related to recruitment, use of force standards, in-service training requirements, um, ensuring meaningful accountability from police leadership. How was it received? We had 
so much positive feedback. Uh, we knew that, you know, ever since the Friendship Center opened in 1983, we have constantly heard from members of our community in St. John's that they feel over-policed yet under-protected by the RNC. And we know that Indigenous communities well beyond St. John's have had similar experiences with both police forces in our province. So the feedback that we received was overwhelmingly positive, and we've received so much support um, for this report. From where I sit and the conversations I've had privately with members of the uh, RNC, is that they welcome these types of initiatives for a variety of reasons. Number one, it used to be, and it's not that long ago, with the concept of community policing, that the police knew the neighborhood, and they knew the people living in the neighborhood, and there was a certain level of respect that came automatically when someone showed up in a police uniform. That's changed. And their effectiveness does indeed come with society valuing them, trusting them, realizing that they have integrity and they will be held accountable. Now, some of these things might seep into our minds from north, or pardon me, south of the border, but policemen that I speak with, or police officers, they think anything that can be done to restore faith in their organization is good for them. If there are bad people working in any layer of uh, law enforcement, the best thing for good cops is for those bad ones to go away. And that's from the top down. So I think if you had a very quiet, silent poll or a secret ballot with members of the RNC, they'd think this is a good idea. Yeah, we have reached out to the RNC and the RCMP to provide feedback on this report. Um, unfortunately, we did not get a response. Uh, we actually did a public opinion poll that revealed that 88% of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians support the creation of a police oversight board, um, and people strongly support this idea. Well, of course they do. And uh, I think there's a lot of reasons as to why. So what's next steps? So we released the final report today. We were very thankful that Minister Hogan was there, was present to hear our voices and hear stories of why we need this. So we are hoping for a commitment from the provincial government um, to implement these recommendations. I don't think you and I have ever spoken before. Have we, Stacey? I think we have once or twice, maybe. Okay, good. You know, for people who are listening now, they might not really know exactly what First Light, the Friendship Center, does and the types of programs available because they're wide and broad. They are wide and broad, actually. Um, you know, we do a lot of community work, program services to the urban indigenous community and beyond. We also do uh, work in housing, health, and uh, First Voice, which was launched by First Light, is a coalition of Indigenous people, service providers, and government agencies working together to advance truth and reconciliation in St. John's. What are you doing with housing in particular? Because that's becoming, we talk about affordability and health care, what have you, but we have a huge problem regarding housing and affordable housing here. What is First Light doing? Yes, we do. And I couldn't agree with Jim Din more when he talked about the disrepair of the city housing. We see it each and every day with the urban Indigenous homeless community. Uh, we do have an Indigenous housing team which works to house people. Uh, we have 10 affordable housing units and we are about to renovate 
uh, one of our locations to implement transitional housing. So we are working against, you know, systemic policies, racism, um, to make that a reality to improve the circumstances for our community. On top of the housing issue, we have a food security and access issue. I know there's a community covered at First Light. What's in it? Yeah, so we have country foods, uh, wild game. Um, we have anything really that the community needs. We have, um, you know, access to cultural items, medicines, hygiene items, and, you know, we just support our community members in any way we can. Appreciate you making time for the show this morning. I'll be curious to see where this civilian police overs- or the civilian oversight proposal goes because it makes a lot of sense to me. Anything else you'd like to say before we say goodbye, Stacey? Yeah, well, this evening we are actually having a Sisters in Spirit vigil, which is taking place at 81 Cochrane Street, and that is to honor the lives of missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, and it is open to the public. I appreciate your time. Good luck with the event this evening. Thank you. It starts at 6 o'clock. Very well. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Goodbye. Uh, that's Stacy House, the First Light Executive Director, so 6 p.m. at 81 Cochrane Street. If that's something that you'd like to attend, it's open to the general public. And they do indeed have an awful lot of different varied programs at the St. John's Friendship Center. I was curious to hear that she said it opened, I think she said 1983. I didn't realize it was as old as that. It has been uh, rebranded or renamed in form. It's First Light, the St. John's Friendship Center. So that's interesting stuff. You know, a couple of people pushing back that, you know, why am I asking people like Jim Dinner, or Barry Petten about potential solutions that their parties may offer as the fall sitting House Assembly resumes tomorrow? Well, for me, just for the obvious reasons, I guess, you know, I do understand the role of the opposition, and they do have an important feature of holding government's feet to the fire, asking questions, criticizing when it's required. Absolutely right. But I also think, at the same time, is that given where we are, and how we got here, I think it's incumbent on all 40 members of the House of Assembly to do their level best to not only be constructive in their criticism and questioning, but good ideas are good ideas. You know, even when it comes in the form of a question, for instance, why is the government unable to do X? Because then it's a criticism and a potential solution being offered in the form of a question. I know they're not playing Jeopardy down there, but... It's, I think, a part of the opposition's role to also be part of the solution, not just the the opposing every idea that comes from government. Some ideas that come from government are good. Some, of course, not so much. But part of their role should include trying to make it easier and better. And I know they try to do that. Of course they do. And in the recent past, there's been, I think, some reasonable work done by the two opposition parties to not politicize every single thing that happens because sometimes we get bogged down in optics and we ignore actual legitimate issues that we should be spending our time on. We should be applying our brain power to, as opposed to everybody on the other side is stupid, you know, because sometimes that's what we hear. On the federal front, oh, man, oh, man. All right, good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a fun, safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.